You can write a very lousy, long historical novel full of sex and can be a bestseller and can be treated respectfully. Yeah. But a very good thriller writer who writes far, far better is just get a little paragraph, that's yeah, all. Yeah, that's true. Mostly. Yeah. There's no attempt to judge him as a writer. Well, I don't know. I suppose but you yourself are judged as a writer and that you'll have it. Oh, yes, and then how long did it take me? You started that for ten years before your publisher knows you're any good. La Jolla, California, 1947. We're at 6005 Camino de la Costa, at the home of Raymond Chandler. It's been three years since the 59-year-old wrote a full-length novel. Instead, he's worked on two screenplays, Chandler co-adapted Double Indemnity with Billy Wilder, and he penned The Blue Dahlia. Both earned Academy Award nominations. Looking for more income, his agent has negotiated a deal for Chandler to help bring a 13-week summer series to NBC. It'll sub for Bob Hope on Tuesday nights. The main character? Chandler's detective, Philip Marlowe. To date, Marlowe has been the focal point of four novels and four films including two almost simultaneously released the past winter. This will, however, be the first time that Philip Marlowe comes to radio's airwaves in a regular show. Tonight, we'll go back in time and spotlight that summer's highest-rated replacement series, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 130. My name is James Scully. Tonight we head to the summer of 1947 and get to the bottom of NBC's Philip Marlowe caper. If this is the first time you're listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Our opening song is Martin Denny's version of Cool. It embodies tonight's hero character, Philip Marlowe, who's influenced the detective genre for the past 85 years. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. If you like this show, share it on social media. Word of mouth is the best form of advertising. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. Well, first of all, the syndicate decided has to decide that he must be killed. They don't want to kill people. No. It's bad business nowadays. Yeah. Then when they make the decision, 
They telephoned to a couple of chaps, say, in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. old hardware stores or something or other, and have a respectable business front. And these chaps come along to New York, and they're given their instructions. And they're told, they're given a photograph of the man and told what's known about him. And when they get on the plane, if they have to get on the plane, in they're given guns. When no, they get not on... in Minneapolis. Oh. No, after they get their instructions. Yeah. They're, they're given guns. Yeah. Now, these guns are not defaced in any way. Wow. But they're guns that have passed through with so many hands that they can, present owners can never be traced. The company could say the first purchaser. So they go uh, to where the man lives. They get an apartment across the street from him or a room. And they study him for days and days and days until they know just exactly when he goes out, when he comes home. What he does, and when they're ready, they simply walk up to him and shoot him. Mm. They have to have a crash car. Bugsy Siegel was a great man for the crash car. Yeah. The crash car is in case a police car should come down the street. Yeah. And it accidentally, on purpose, smashes the police car. Yes, that's So they ever thought they'd get away, they get back on the plane, go home, that's all there is to it. And they drop the gun. They drop the gun. Uh, at the spot, do they leave? They always drop the guns, yes. And wear gloves? How many fingerprints have ever been taken off guns? Yes, quite. So they always hold them by the butt. Yes. That's quite true. How much do they get paid for that each? Ten thousand. Ten thousand each? Mm-hmm. If it's an important man. Yes. But small money for a syndicate. Yes. And then they go back to their jobs in the hardware stores in uh, Minneapolis. Yes. Quite impersonal. Yeah, they don't mind one way or the other. They don't care anything about the man. They don't care about his dead or alive. It's just a job to them. Yeah. Of course, they have to be a certain sort of people or they wouldn't do it. I mean, they're not like us. We wouldn't do it. No. Difficult thing to imagine doing. Well, I've known people I'd like to shoot. For instance, (laughs) anybody in England? No, not in England. What do you want to shoot them for? I just thought they were better dead. Raymond Chandler was born on July 23, 1888, in Chicago, Illinois. He spent his early years in Nebraska until his father an alcoholic railway civil engineer, abandoned the family. In 1900, his Irish mother, Florence, moved with Raymond to England. Chandler went to Dulwich College in London. In 1907, he became a naturalized British subject and took a job as an admiral, but resigned. He grabbed a reporter position at the Daily Express and later the Westminster Gazette. Unhappy in England, Chandler wanted to be a writer, so he returned to America in 1912. He settled in San Francisco, where he took a correspondence course in bookkeeping. His mother joined him there soon after. They moved to Los Angeles in 1913, where he strung tennis rackets, picked fruit, and found steady employment with the Los Angeles Creamery. But then, the U.S. and Canada finally joined World War I. In 1917, 
Chandler enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. He saw combat in the trenches in France and was twice hospitalized with the Spanish flu. He was in flight training with the Royal Air Force when the war ended. He returned to Los Angeles and began a love affair with Sissy Pascal, a married woman 18 years his senior. She amicably divorced her husband in 1920, but Chandler's mother disapproved of the relationship and refused to sanction the marriage. For the next four years, Chandler supported both. His mother passed away in 1923. Raymond married Sissy on February 6, 1924. Having begun in 1922 as a bookkeeper and auditor, by 1931, he was a highly paid VP at the Dabney Oil Syndicate. But he suffered frequent mental health breakdowns. He drank too much, skipped work, was promiscuous with female employees, and publicly threatened suicide. Chandler was fired in 1932. Every week at this time, the makers of G. Washington's Coffee bring you a story from the Sherlock Holmes series of mystery dramas. This week's adventure is an adaptation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story entitled The Final Problem. Remember as you listen to it that G. Washington solves your daily coffee problem just as surely as Holmes solves his famous mystery. At the end of the program, we have a brief announcement about Dr. Watson and his friend Sherlock Holmes. Please listen for it. And that opening paragraph is always leads us to Dr. Watson's comfortable, hospitable study. Where there's a blazing fire and a steaming cup of G. Washington coffee to welcome. Detective and suspense shows had been on radio since the medium's inception. Thank you, Dr. Watson. They were often similar to dime store novels. Sherlock Holmes began in 1930. Chandler taught himself to write pulp-style fiction by analyzing a novelette by Earl Stanley Gardner. His first story, Black Mailers Don't Shoot, was published in Black Mask magazine in 1933. His lead character was called Mallory. It took him five months to finish the story, or else Stanley Gardner wrote entire stories in three or four days. Chandler later said, wandering up and down the Pacific coast in an automobile, I began to read pulp magazines. This was in the great days of Black Mask. It struck me that some of the writing was pretty forceful and honest, even though it had a crude aspect. I decided that this might be a good way to try to learn to write fiction and get paid a small amount of money at the same time. I spent five months on an 18,000-word novelette and sold it for $180. After that, I never looked back, although I had many uneasy periods looking forward. Although he never wrote with the speed of Gardner or Dashiell Hammett, throughout the 1930s, Chandler infused a literate background into Pulp Fiction. His writing had touches of Fitzgerald-like romanticism and Faulkner-like descriptiveness. Southern California was the chief setting. Along with Mallory, two other detectives, Carmody and John Dalmas, became main characters. The short story titles were as hard-boiled as the action. Among them were The Smart Alec Kill, Finger Man, 
Spanish blood. Guns at Cyrano's. Pickup on Noon Street. Mandarin's Jade. Red Wind. The King in Yellow. Pearls are a nuisance. And trouble is my business. In early 1939, Chandler began to combine plot lines and elements from previous stories into an expanded, cohesive novel. He decided his detective needed a new name, something that sounded both tough and educated. Carmody, Mallory, and Dalmas were retired. In their place, Chandler inserted a character that would go on to be one of the most famous fictional detectives of the 20th century, Philip Marlowe. See me? So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Ah, oh, you're a mess, aren't you? <clears throat> I'm not very tall either. Next time I'll come on stilts, wear a white tie, and carry a tennis racket. I doubt if even that would help. Now, this business of Dad's. Think you can handle it for him? That shouldn't be too tough. Really? I would have thought a case like that took a little effort. Not too much. What will your first step be? The usual one. I didn't know there was a usual oh, one. Oh, sure there is. It comes complete with diagrams on page 47 of how to be a detective in 10 easy lessons, correspondence school textbook, and uh, your father offered me a drink. You must have read another one on how to be a comedian. You hear what I said about the drink? I'm quite serious, Mr. Marlowe. My father's trying to help yourself. Oh, Marlowe, private eye is a catalyst. Now, look, Mr. Marlowe. He's the man who resolves the situation. He doesn't exist in real life. No, he doesn't. Unless you can make him seem real. Yeah. No professional secrets. No. I thought you wanted a drink. I changed my mind. Then what? He doesn't make any money, either. Marlowe seems real to me. I mean, I visualize him quite a bit. Oh, I know, but that's because I've known him so long. Yeah. He's not real as a specimen of a private detective. you'll know who he is. Uh-huh. You don't have to play poker with me, Mr. Marlowe. Ed wants to find him, doesn't he? Do you? They must have an immense interior courage, though. They must, because it's a dull job and they get no thanks for it and they get no medals. It's pretty bad on the wives, too. They have a hard time. But I don't like your manners. Well, I'm not crazy about yours. I didn't ask to see you. Wives of policemen don't have a very good time in America. They don't. The policemen get shot every once in a while. Yes, because you suit much more than we do over here. Oh, they carry guns. Oh. Do you always think you can handle people like uh, train seals? Uh huh. I usually get away with it too. How nice for you. Just what is it you're afraid of? He doesn't know what it's all about. Yes. He knows that there's something strange about it, but he doesn't know just what it's all about. Uh -huh. It seems to me that the real mystery is not who killed. Sir John in his study. But what the situation really was, what the people were after, what sort of people they were. Dad didn't tell you that. Oh, yes, he told me about Regan, but that's not what he wants to see me about. That's what you've been trying to get me to say, isn't it? I'm sure I don't care what you say, Mr. Marlowe. I'm wasting your time. Goodbye, Mrs. Rutledge. 
made a mistake. Mrs. Rutledge didn't want to see me. I'm sorry, sir. I make many mistakes. Santa Rosa, California, is six feet tall and weighs 190 pounds. He has dark, wavy hair. In Chandler's first Marlowe novel, The Big Sleep, set in 1936, he's 33. Marlowe had two years of college and was an investigator for the L.A. District Attorney. He was fired for insubordination. His office is in the Cahuenga Building on Hollywood Boulevard near Ivar. James Bond author Ian Fleming once asked Chandler, why he set the Marlowe stories in Los Angeles. Well, I lived many years in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles and California had been written about. A book by Ra called Ramona, a lot of sentimental flop. But nobody in my time had tried to write about the Los Angeles background in any sort of realistic way. Now. Of course, now half the writers in America live in California. <laughs> Through Marlowe's eyes, L.A. comes to life. He frequents everything from the nightclubs of West Hollywood to the seedy downtown hotels, from the Pasadena mansions to the Santa Monica gambling ships, from the Hollywood glamour factories to the rundown bus depots. He drinks whiskey, usually Four Roses or Old Forester, and sometimes drinks gin. His preferred coffee is black, and his cigarette brand is Camel. At home, he smokes a pipe, especially while playing chess by himself. It was said that Chandler wrote like a slumming angel invested in the sun-blinded streets of L.A. with a romantic presence. The second Marlowe novel, Farewell, My Lovely, was published in 1940. This was followed by The High Window in 1942 and The Lady in the Lake in 1943. The first official Marlowe film was Murder, My Sweet with Dick Powell in 1944. Powell played the adaptation of Farewell, My Lovely on the June 11th 1945 episode of the Lux Radio Theater. Philip Marlowe, private investigator. That's a nice title for somebody you go to see when you don't want to see the law. I was tired out. I'd been out peeking under old Sunday sections for a barber named Dominic whose wife wanted him back. I forget why. Anyway, I didn't find him, and the only reason I took the job was because my bank account was trying to crawl under a duck. I just found out all over again how big Los Angeles is. My brain felt like a plumber's handkerchief. I took out my little black book and decided to go grouse hunting. Nothing like soft shoulders to improve my morale. Humphrey Bogart starred in the 1946 adaptation of The Big Sleep, heard opposite Lauren Bacall at the beginning of this act. That same year, Chandler and his wife bought a home in La Jolla. In early 1947, two new Marlowe films came to theaters. The Lady in the Lake starring Robert Montgomery was released in January. Montgomery reprised his role in the February 9, 1948 episode of Lux. Right now, you're hearing a lot about a murder. They call it The Case of the Lady in the Lake. That's a good title. It fits. But what you've heard about is one thing, and the real thing is something else again. There's only one guy who knows that. I know it. Then in February, an adaptation of The High Window, 
called The Brasher de Bloom, came to theaters starring the unrelated George Montgomery. But this time there was no letdown. Mr. Marlowe? Yes. I'm so terribly glad you could come. Well, I'm beginning to feel better about it myself. Well, just having you here makes me sure everything's going to be all right. <laughs> you have even more confidence in my ability than I have. Marlowe was a hot commodity. On March 22nd, it was announced that NBC would bring a summer series to the air. Tuesday nights were NBC's highest rated evening, and although summer ratings were always the year's lowest, NBC executives had high hopes that Marlowe would be a perfect fit Tuesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Pacific. The ad agency Foot Conan Building made a deal with MGM. They tabbed rising leading man Van Heflin to play Marlowe. Yes, Roma wines taste better because only Roma selects from the world's greatest wine reserves for your pleasure. And now, Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Roma Wines present... Suspense! Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Mr. Van Heflin in Three Blind Mice, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines... By William Spear. Van Heflin was born on December 13, 1908 in Walters, Oklahoma. The son of a dentist. He began his acting career on Broadway in the late 1920s. Between 1928 and 36, he appeared in Mr. Moneypenny, The Bride of Tarosco, The Night Remembers, Midwest, and End of Summer. That year, Heflin signed with RKO and made his film debut opposite Catherine Hepburn in A Woman Rebels. He spent the next five years playing character parts. He made his radio debut on the Columbia Workshop in 1938. Lockwood, Bentley, and Walsh Publishing. It still said it on the big brass nameplate. Going down. Oh, good evening, Mr. Lockwood. Good evening. Sure, the elevator operators were nice to me. Most of the office boys remembered to knock on my door before they came in. And even some of the stenographers still spoke to me. But everybody else above the rank of junior story reader knew it was just a question of time before that big brass nameplate in the lobby came down and another one went up in its place. Bentley and Walsh Publishing. No more Lockwood. If ever a man hated his partners, I did. Main forcer. I went out of the building and across the street to the Savoy for dinner. Even the head waiter must have heard the rumor. He gave me the dime-sized table over in the corner that's generally reserved for out-of-town ribbon clerks. It's all right, Bob. There'll be another day. I'd gotten to coffee and dessert when I saw Helen Conover. Well, that just about summed it up. Heflin signed with MGM as the U.S. was getting into World War II. In 1942, his role as Jeff Hartnett and Johnny Eager won him a Best Supporting Actor Academy Award. He got top billing in two B-films. Kid Glove Killer and Grand Central Murder. Both were popular. She could have personally modeled for any pinup art that you ever saw, but she was reserving anything along that line for my partner, Dick Walsh. Okay, sister, it'll be another day. Hello, Mr. Lockwood. 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 Hello
Hello, Arthur. Dining alone? Yes, yeah, it's a habit. That I could break it under the right conditions. Oh, but you're all finished. That's all right. I'm just a big book publisher. I've got nothing to do. Well, if it's not against office regulations to have dinner with the boss. Regulations? <laughs> well, they never bothered you, now, did they? Now, Arthur, let's keep this clean. Does Madame wish to order? Yes, uh, the steak dinner, please. No soup and no potatoes. Very good, madam. Working kind of late, aren't you? Not working. Dick wanted me to see him off on the train. Train? Where's he going? Chicago. What for? Business, I suppose. Didn't he tell you? <laughs> You know, they never tell me anything anymore. Well, it wasn't anything very important, I guess. Well, I'd know even less if it had been. Encouraged, MGM cast him as Catherine Grayson's love interest in a musical, Seven Sweethearts. He soon played Judy Garland's love interest in presenting Lily Mars, before enlisting in the U.S. Army Air Force as a combat cameraman. He made a radio appearance, too, in Arch Obler's parade over Mutual on August 2nd, 1945. That was less than two weeks before the end of the war. I don't understand you. I've, I've just told you that one of your partners has only six months to live, and you don't even seem to care. Now, look, let's be grown up about it, at least. Sam Bentley and Dick Walsh have been trying to ease me out of the firm for the last year. Now Sam's going to kick off. Why should I care? You really hate him, don't you? Me? I don't hate anybody. I just hope he kicks off tonight instead of waiting six months and the Dick Walsh's train runs into the Hudson River, that's all. I don't hate anybody. I just wish they were dead. Oh, Arthur, how can you? What's the matter with that? I wish my partners were out of the way, and you wish... Well, I know what you wish, too, only I'm honest about it, and you're not. This isn't a very pleasant conversation. There's always a better one. For instance, what are you doing tonight? (laughs) I'm going home and get a good night's sleep for a change. Oh, by the way, uh, how long is Dick going to be away? About a week. You'll be kind of lonely, won't you? I don't see why I should. Well, that's what I was thinking. You know, I've always had a sort of a yen for you, Helen. Why, Mr. Lockwood, why don't people tell me these things? People don't have to tell people like you those things. <laughs> now that you mention it, I do seem to have noticed a sort of a leer every so often. Uh, that wasn't any leer, baby. That was the real McCoy. Look, Arthur, this may sound kind of corny, but I'm in love with Dick, and he's in love with me. Oh, it does. What? Sound corny. Why doesn't he marry you? You know why? Sure, that wife that won't divorce him. You know, he's been using that one for the last ten years. Please, Arthur, I'd rather not talk about it. Okay, okay. Not to change the subject, but, um, what do you expect to get out of it? Get out of what? The reorganization, the big day when they kick old Arthur out of the firm. You think maybe they'll make you a vice president? I really don't know what you're talking about, Arthur. Well, you ought to think about it. Because you can never tell, I might be able to make you an even better proposition. I'm afraid I'm not interested in your propositions, Arthur. Any of them. Okay, baby. That'll be another day. After the war, MGM loaned him to Hal Wallace to appear opposite Barbara Stanwyck in The Strange Love of Martha Ivers and to Warner Brothers to co-star with Joan Crawford in Possessed. It was a hit, and more radio followed. Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Roma, America's favorite wine. Well, this is Ken Niles bringing back to our microphone the distinguished star of tonight's suspense play, Van Heflin. Van, you played the part of a publisher tonight. How about publishing a few tips on Roma wines? Well, with wine like Roma, Ken, all you need to do is publish the facts. Well, uh, fact number one is that Roma, America's greatest vintner, has asked me to present you with this basket of Roma wines for your wonderful performance tonight. Well, that's a very good beginning, Ken, my... My thanks to you and to Roma. A fact number two, Van, is that your friends will enjoy the Roma California Sherry in your gift basket. For golden amber fragrant Roma Sherry with tempting nut-like taste 
is the perfect first call to dinner. The ideal wine for entertaining any time. Right, Ken. But tell the people why Roma Sherry is so good. Give them the facts, my boy, the facts. <laughs> all right, you are, Professor Heflin. Fact number three. Roma Sherry, like all Roma wines, begins with California's choicest grapes. Then Roma Vintners, with America's finest winemaking resources, guide these select grapes unhurriedly to tempting taste perfection and place them with Roma wines of years before. Later, Roma selects from this vast taste treasure the world's greatest wine reserves for your pleasure. Ken, you're hired. Thank you, and good night. Van Heflin may currently be seen in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's Technicolor musical Till the Clouds Roll By with Van Johnson, Judy Garland, and Frank Sinatra. Tonight's suspense play was written by Kenneth Pettis and Robert Richards. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Mr. Glenn Ford as star of Suspense. On January 30th, 1947, Heflin guest starred on this episode of Suspense. A month later, he guest starred on Family Theater. And in May... He was featured on Lux Radio's Vacation from Marriage. Three weeks later, Heflin would start on Philip Marlowe. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. Thirty years with the same network? Thirty years? I'm on my thirty-first. No. Have you ever been with another network? I no. don't recall. You've no. never worked for any of the no. other no. major this networks? No, this is it. This is it. On radio, too? Always NBC? Radio. I was on radio for twelve years before that. Yeah. So I'm on my forty-third year. That's incredible. Started as a child. I sat there listening to you. Yeah. Oh, I meant that. When I, was, when I was growing up, not to make you sound like an elderly man, but I, I would tell you and Jack Benny and Fred Allen and Fibber McGee and Molly and all of those shows had a great effect on people of my generation. Sure. We stole from you all. Sure. A little, little bit here and there. Sure. Your first show was... Great, love, wonderful medium. I don't know why we ever got into this stuff, you know. <laughs> I love, no, I love radio at Sunset and Vine where we used to do and read the jokes and kiss the script and walk out and drop the whole thing in the can and keep going right to the golf course. <laughs> Now you'd have to go and have your head blocked, you know. Make up an all of that stuff. Shy, look you over. My God, it's murder.
Tonight, on behalf of the North Hollywood Building Fund for the YM and YWCA, Lieber Brothers Company presents The Pepsodent Show, starring Bob Hope and his special guest, Peter Lorre. <laughs> Thank you, relatives. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob broadcasting from North Hollywood, California for the YMCA's Building Fund Hope, telling you whether you're an office boy or a vice president, to use Pepsodent, you won't have any trouble getting dated because your teeth will be well-mated, they'll never be gold-plated, shaded, or like me and get faded. <laughs> well, we're broadcasting... By the middle of 1947... Nearly 11 million babies had been born in the U.S. since the end of World War II. Young parents were staying home with their children. Homes with radios jumped 6%, car radios 29%. Over the next year, radio would have its largest audience in history. The four major networks added 147 affiliates. Network revenue topped $200 million. NBC had the top seven shows. The Bob Hope Show closed the 46-47 season as radio's highest-rated program. The comedian pulled a rating of 27.6. But I love it here. North Hollywood is my home. Ah, home. Be it ever so humble. Network-fed programs generally had 13, 26, 39, or 52-week contracts. Hope's NBC contract ran for 39. Pepsi would sponsor the new Philip Marlowe series in Hope's time slot. The comedian's show cost $21,000 each week to produce. Marlowe would cost $4,000. Heflin guest starred on Hope's June 3rd program to help promote the series. The adventures of Philip Marlowe would begin the first week of June. And Sinatra... For more information on the state of the world in 1947, tune into Breaking Walls episodes 97, 98, and 99. I can see him exercising every morning. He does push-ups until he finally stands up. <laughs> and he's helping with the YMCA drive. He strolled down Lancashire Boulevard without a shirt this morning, and 3,000 people signed up for the gym class. Betty, Betty Grable moved next door to me last month. For two weeks, I complained about the noise her dog was making. Then I found out it was my echo. <laughs> but we're doing this show to aid the Y building fund. When I was young, I belonged to the Y, and I used to beat up all the other kids. Of course, when I got a little older, they made me join the YMCA. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to be so weak, I had to blow up my bubble gum with a bicycle pump. Picture that. <laughs> you through with it? So am I. Anyway. And I weighed so little when I played with my yo-yo, the yo-yo would stand still and I would go up and down. <laughs> I was strong. You've seen that huge arm holding the hammer on a box of bicarbonate? Well, I posed for the third fizz on the Alka-Seltzer bottle. <laughs> but I wanted to help out with the publicity for this show, so I posed in the gym suit in front of the wives. Two old ladies were standing in the crowd. One looked at my muscles, then she turned to the other and said, Isn't California wonderful, Agnes? In two more months, those avocados will be ripe.
The Adventures of Philip Marlowe debuted on NBC with Red Wind on June 17, 1947. The 1938 short story is set on one of those evenings when the hot, dry Santa Ana wind gusts through Los Angeles, turning the mood sour. The program aired live at 10 p.m. on the East Coast, with a second broadcast done at 9 p.m. for the West. The script was adapted by Milton Geiger, Jim Fonda directed, Wendell Niles announced. And uh, Wendell Niles was the man who said, and now the um, Lever Brothers, the makers of Pepsodent, present Bob Hope. Wendell, glad yes. to have you with us today. You, you, announced, nice to you announced for Bob Hope for how long? Uh, I think we did about seven or eight years. <laughs> I have the scars to prove it. It was a long, <laughs> all through the war. All through the war. So you would travel with Bob from camp to camp then in all those shows? Yeah, huh? I didn't go overseas with him because I had to stay and do the uh, shows. We were on uh, for Pepsi. Mm -hmm. so, no summer break on those no. Hope shows? No, usually no, not. When he was traveling, usually I did the shows locally. It's always amazing to me, Eddie, to look in New York uh, things and see who did my shows. Like uh, Bill Goodwin gets most of the credit for being in the Hope Show and a few other people. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a thing uh, they did. Uh, I suppose you guys all did the same thing. They, they put out a book on the people who were in the Walk of Fame. And I got a nice picture, a big picture, almost a half, and I got... Two shows that they gave me credit for. I never heard of either one of them. <laughs> well, we heard we can we'll rattle off a bunch of your credits. Bob Hope show, uh, Lum and Abner, uh, The Man Called X with Herbert Marshall. You were on the When a Girl Marries. You uh, announced that show. A Fitch bandwagon. Yeah, thousands of them. Charlotte Greenwood, Philip Marlowe. For the safety of your smile, use Pepsodent twice a day. See your dentist twice a year. Lever Brothers Company presents the Pepsodent program, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Pepsodent presents Philip Marlowe, Hollywood's famous private detective created by Raymond Chandler. Philip Marlowe, tough, cynical, private eye of Murder, My Sweet, the sardonic, case-hardened detective of The Brasher Doubloon, The Lady in the Lake, and The Big Sleep. You've seen him in action in all of those top-flight mystery pictures. Now, in order that you may continue to enjoy this exciting mystery series, Pepsodent brings you The Adventures of Philip Marlowe on the air with a cast of noted radio players. And starring MGM's brilliant and dynamic young actor, Van Heflin. Now families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste. New Pepsodent with Irium. New fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new cool minty flavor. It's the three-to-one favorite over all other toothpastes. It's true. With families all over America, new Pepsodent is the favorite three-to-one. Families from coast to coast recently compared new Pepsodent with other toothpastes at home. They preferred new Pepsodent by an overwhelming average of three-to-one over all other brands they tried. 
These families, three to one, said new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Yes, families three to one say new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Get new Pepsodent toothpaste for your family right away. It was a rough desert wind blowing into Los Angeles that evening. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that come down through the mountain passes and curl your hair, make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends up in a fight, and meek little housewives feel the edge of a carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen when the Santa Ana blows in from the desert. I closed up my office early. I got tired of reading Philip Marlowe, private investigator, backwards on the ground glass of my office door. So I opened the door and closed it from the outside and locked it and went out to get a beer before I went up to my apartment. Uh, fill her up again, Mr. Marlin? Marlowe. Marlowe. Marlin is a fish. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey. Hey, you bartender. Come in on the ride. That drunk again. What'd you expect in this business? Autograph hounds? Make it snappy, yeah? Be right with you, sport. I gotta draw this man a beer. Crying out loud, these stumble bums who come in here. You got another customer, Bacchus? Hey, bud. You seen a lady in here lately? A lady? Tall, good-looking, brown hair, a print bolero jacket, and a blue silk dress. No, sir. No, sir. Nobody like that's been in. All right, straight scotch, fast. I left my engine running out there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This slick-looking, sarcastic guy stepped up to the bar and drank his scotch whole. And he stopped. The drunk was grinning at him. And then, without changing his grin, the drunk swept a gun from somewhere so fast it was just a blur coming out. Made a couple of hard snaps and a little smoke curled. Very little. You other guys, don't move. So long, Waldo. All right, don't move, you two. Oh, Waldo, but I made his nose bleed. So long, boys. Drink up. All right, get on that phone, kid. I'll get his license number. Holy smoke! Holy smoke! Not too late. Drove away with this dead guy's car. Uh, maybe he ain't dead. He's dead, all right. Where's your phone? This is for the police. The prowl car boys were there in about five minutes. Waldo was out of business, all right. And nothing in his pockets told who he was, but he had about $700 on him. I told the cops what I knew, including about Waldo's tall, brown-haired, pretty girl in the bolero jacket. It was about nine o'clock when I stepped out of the elevator in my apartment house and almost walked right into a tall, brown-haired, pretty girl in a bolero jacket, waiting for the elevator on my floor. Oh, excuse me. Just a minute, lady. I said, excuse me, I'm in a hurry. 
Now, if you'll be good enough Look, to step out Look, you better out not go outside in those clothes. Just what do you mean by telling me this what... This isn't a make. You're in trouble. Trouble? Yeah, the cops are looking for you in those clothes. But I haven't done anything that... I'm in room 41 across the hall now. I never collected an etching in my life. All right, I'll go with you. I'll go. I got to my room and rustled up some scotch and soda and brought the girl her glass. She had a small automatic in her hand. It jumped up at me, and her eyes were full of panic. I put down both glasses on the table slowly so that I wouldn't be misunderstood. Look, sister, maybe this wind has got you crazy, too. Don't move. Careful, don't move. A man just got shot in a bar down the street. Before he got it, he'd been asking about a tall, pretty girl with a bolero jacket, like yours. What did he look like, this man? Tall, 5'11", slim, dark, dark brown eyes with a lot of glitter, dark suit, white handkerchief in the breast pocket. And he must have seen you earlier tonight to know how you were dressed. Am I getting anywhere? He used to be my chauffeur. You had an appointment with him, didn't you? Why? Listen, he asked for you, didn't he? Yes, I had an appointment with him. He'd stolen something from me when he left three days ago. I was going to buy it back from him. Why didn't you tell the police? I couldn't tell them. It was valuable, wasn't it? Valuable enough for Waldo to steal. $15,000. Oh, it's peanuts. But it wasn't the value. It meant something to me. The man I love gave it to me, and now he's dead. He was a flyer shot down over Germany. I'll go back and tell my husband that. He probably hired you. He did? How much is he paying me? And uh, where is this husband of yours? He's at a meeting. This late at night? He's a very important man. He's a hydroelectric engineer. I'll have you know that my husband oh, is one of the... Oh, skip it. I'll take him out to lunch sometime and have him tell me himself. And about Waldo. Whatever he had on you is dead stock now, like Waldo himself. You mean he's dead? Waldo is dead? Yes, sister, he's dead. Dead, dead, dead. Lady, he is dead. Oh. I scream and I'll give you two black eyes. I'm not going to scream. Who will that be? There's a dressing room behind that door. Hide there. Right, now, don't argue with me, do it. Right, all right. Then I went to the door making a loud, yawning sound. The backs of my hands were wet. I opened the door. Without a gun, that was a mistake. I certainly knew the gun I was looking into, a 22 target automatic that had already killed one man that night. And I knew the bald head and the flat, shiny eyes and the face like a poisonous lizard. Baldy put the muzzle of his gun lightly against my throat. I, I backed into the room, and Baldy kicked the door shut. You alone? Look for yourself. I'm asking, not looking. I'm alone. You and that dumb bartender saw me dust off Waldo. What did Waldo do to you? Who's asking? Just making conversation. He stooled on me on a bank job we did together. Got me four years in Michigan pen. How is he? Dead. <laughs> I'm still good, drunk or sober. Tell me why I came here, pal. You heard the barkeeper and me talking, and I told him my name, where I lived. That's how, pal. I said, why? Oh, skip it. The hangman won't ask you to guess why he's there. Oh, you're pretty tough at that, ain't you? But you're slamming off, pal. 
All right, but you could get that gun out of my neck and try somewhere else. Oh, yeah, sure. Is this better? This suit you all right? Just so it is in my neck. Say when, pal. It's your party. I leaned against the gun. The door of the dressing room showed a crack of darkness. The crack widened. I began to shake a little. The girl came quietly into the room, but there was white all around her iris. She was scared. She had her gun in her hand, but I was sorry for her. Dead sorry. She'd try to make the door scream either way. It'd be curtains for both of us. You scared, mister? You worried about any little thing? I couldn't talk. The girl floated in the air somewhere behind Baldy, and her horrified face was drifting toward us. My mouth was as cold and dry as yesterday's toast. Well, kid, how's it feel? You ready yet? Go on, say the word. Well, don't take all night about it if you're if you're going to do something about it. Why not, pal? I like this. Now, suppose I yell. Go ahead, yell. Go ahead. Put up yeah. your hands! Hey, look! Oh. Thanks, sister. Thanks. That that buys me. Everything I have is yours now and forever. Is he dead? You flatter me no end, lady. I only punched him. All right, now get out of here while I call the cops down on this killer. Yes. yes good night. Good hey, night. Hey, wait, wait. Leave that Bolero jacket here. It mocks you for the cops. Oh, yes, here. Okay. See you again? Why? Oh, I don't know. No, I guess not. After all, who am I to be the rival of a dead flyer? I'll see that the police get Jesse James here. Good night, lady. <laughs> Harry Bartell played the bartender. I started in radio in 1930 in a very weird place called Houston, Texas. <laughs> Worked with what was then one of the most unique features of radio I've ever come across. The motion picture theaters used to send out 15-minute condensations of the pictures that they were releasing in town. And if you were fortunate enough to work on these shows, you received two tickets to the theater. <laughs> and the tickets were then worth 25 cents apiece. And after I left Texas, where I've been doing a lot of little theater work, I came to California to work at Pasadena Playhouse. The announcer with whom I had started in Houston had a brother who was then at KEHE in Los Angeles. That was the Blue Network station for National Broadcasting Company. He introduced me to a man who had a slave mart called Allied Advertising Agencies. And through them, I started in commercials, did disc jockey work, did staff announcing, and finally declared independence one day and said, from now on, I'm going to do nothing but freelance acting. That was in 1943. Lorreen Tuttle was Lola Barsley. Radio acting is not reading. It is being while you read. You have to create a whole human being. Uh, these days, I find that most of the people who do voiceovers and vocal work uh, in the background, an awful lot of cartoon people and a lot of um, uh, commercial people, have kind of resorted to a cartoon sound. Where we never did. See, 
They used to laugh about it, and they used to make remarks about it, which annoyed me. Uh, they'd say, well, bring out voice 22. Well, I couldn't bring out voice 22 until I, had, until I had a person behind it. I could, on the air, I could play on a show a person I created visually, a whole flesh and blood human being. And I would come home, and my little niece would say to me, I love that lady you played with black hair, with a bun on the back, and long earrings, and a green dress. You know, she, I created it so accurately that there was no doubt in anybody's mind who I was playing. I was not doing a voice. The episode also featured Elliot Reed, Bill Johnstone, and William Conrad. I had never been on a network show and I was in the army, and it was about 1945, and somebody said they will allow you for the next two or three months while you're waiting to get out to take a job occasionally, as long as it doesn't interfere with your work. And I was in the Armed Forces Radio Service. So uh, I went up and auditioned for a show called The Whistler on CBS. Hope to get a small part in it. Much to my amazement, I got a call to come do it that Sunday, and uh, I was doing the lead in it. <laughs> it scared the hell out of me. But I did it. I guess they liked it because they asked me back next week to do the lead in it. And I think that was the first... That, well, I know that was the first network show I ever did. Yeah? You mean me? Yes. Please. Oh, you. Again, huh? Get in. I must talk to you. You want to know what happened at headquarters, huh? Yes. Well, I went down there with the law and gave them the story. I left you out of it. Oh, thank you. You saved my life, so no one knows a thing about you. Well, incidentally, neither do I. Well, my name is Mrs. Frank Bosley. 212 Fremont Place, Olympia 24596. Is that what you wanted? I guess so. Well, there it is. Now, why did you really come back? I wanted my pearls. Pearls? Yes. Pearls, too, huh? All right. Tell me about the pearls. We've had a murder and a beautiful mystery woman and a sadistic killer and a heroic rescue. Now we will have pearls. I was to buy them back from the man called Waldo. Well, I saw everything that came out of his pockets, and there weren't any pearls. Could they be hidden in his apartment? Uh, it's possible. Waldo lived on the same floor you do in this apartment house. And why didn't I know him, at least by sight? He moved in last week. He managed to get a sublet. Oh, great, a sort of an amateur magician on the side, huh? It's, it's getting rather late. Yeah. What about your husband this hot, mysterious night? He's still at his meeting. Well, you could have brought him along. You could have sat in the back seat working out a problem in hydroelectrics while... Well, what? Well, I didn't have any answers. They wouldn't sound cheap or just ridiculous or from the sophomore class in repartee. Had an unlit cigarette in my hand. I threw it out of the window. I took a hold of her and kissed her. She sat very still. I was shaking when I let go of her. Her voice trembled a little when she spoke. I meant you to do that. I wasn't always that way. Only since Johnny Dalmas was killed in the war. He gave me those pearls. Forty-one of them perfectly matched with the diamond propeller clasp. 
I'd have loved them if they'd been wooden beads because he gave them to me. I love Johnny. The way you love just one time. You understand that? Hmm. What's your name? Lola. Lola, how did you explain a $15,000 pearl necklace to your husband? I told him they were imitation, then I bought them myself. How did Walter latch on to them and what they stood for? When my husband was in Argentina, Walter and I'd go for long drives. I was restless and wretched because of Johnny. Sometimes Waldo and I had a little drink together, but that's all. But you confided in Waldo about this pearls. I was a fool. And when your husband came back, Walter stole the pearls and offered to sell them back to you, or he'd tell Papa, huh? I was a fool. And now you think the pearls are upstairs in Walter's apartment? I suppose it's a lot to ask. No, sweetheart, huh? I've been paid. I'll go look. Wait here, huh? Has it gone long, Lola? No. Well? No. No pearls? No pearls. Oh. There was a man in Waldo's room. A man? Who? You know a man named Leon Valsanos? Not by name. I don't know. Mexican, South American, about uh, 45, small, iron gray hair, very neat, fawn-colored suit, wine-colored tie. No, I don't think I know such a man. Is he the one in Waldo's room? Yeah. What does he have to say? Very little. In fact, nothing. He's dead. You are listening to The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin, with music composed and conducted by Lynn Murray. Yes, families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste. New Pepsodent with invigorating irium foam. New, fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new, cool, minty flavor. It's the three-to-one favorite over all other toothpastes. It's true. With families all over America, new Pepsodent is the favorite three-to-one. The Farrell family of Evergreen Park, Illinois, preferred new Pepsodent on every single count. The Farrells say new Pepsodent tastes best of all, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. On all these counts, by an overwhelming average of three to one, families prefer new Pepsodent over all other toothpaste they've tried. It's a fact. Families three to one say new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, and makes teeth brighter. Remember, this is not just our opinion. It's the honest conviction of the Farrells and other families who compared new Pepsodent with other toothpaste they had at home. Get new Pepsodent, the only toothpaste containing irium. Get it for your family without delay. We continue with the adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler and starring Van Heflin, who appears by arrangement with Metro-Golden-Mare, producers of the Technicolor musical Fiesta, starring Esther Williams. I sat with Lola Barsley in her car listening to that jittery, infuriating desert wind gallop around in the midnight streets. 
I just told her about the Latin-looking man I'd found in Waldo's room in a very dead condition. I held her hands until they stopped trembling. Then I gave her the few remaining details. He had a gun in a shoulder holster, but someone had strangled him before he could use it. Someone? Waldo? Maybe. You see that convertible coupe two cars ahead of us? It's been there for hours. It was there before I parked here to wait for you. Leon, the man in Waldo's room, came in that car, but according to the key containers he carried, that isn't his car. Whose car is it? Does it matter? Well, it belongs to a lady, according to the tag on the keys. A lady? Well, anyway, a woman, if you're going to split hairs. Eugenie Kolchenko. Hmm? In West Los Angeles? Never heard of her. Uh-huh. All right, well, you go home now, huh? What are you going to do? Drive that flossy convertible around, wave at my friends, impress people. You run along now. Me, I've got another date. By the summer of 1947, Lorene Tuttle was well known for co-starring in The Adventures of Sam Spade. It was a decidedly different character. Here's an example of Miss Tuttle's range, playing the zany Effie on Spade. Goodbye. Now, wait a minute, Effie. You can't leave like this. Not without... Oh, all right. I'll talk to you while I'm putting my hat on. Well, can't you at least look at me? After all, you should give me a chance to justify... Sam, apparently you're laboring under an apprehension. Of course I am. Oh, boy, am I glad I picked the last in June and the first in July. What are you talking about? My vacation. Vacation? You just had a vacation a few months back. Well, Sam, that's a year. Well, if you want to take advantage of a legal technicality... Now, Sam, don't say goodbye, man. Well, it... Well, it's... Customary, I suppose. It's, it's lucky that some of us keep our nose to the grindstone, our ear to the ground, an eye to the future. Huh? Television's just around the corner, you know. Oh, Sam! <laughs> Come here, sweetheart. You look lovely in it. Come here. Have a wonderful time. <laughs> oh, Sam. Oh, Sam. Come here. The Sam Spade Show. When, after a while, I think about the second year, I got involved with the Red Skelton show. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't stay there to do the, the Sam Spade show. So I would have to put our opening, dear little opening scene and our closing scene on um, record. And we would put that on during rehearsal. And then I'd go and do the Red Skelton show. So I really wasn't there for the actual showing. They would just put my part on. Uh -huh. In other words, when the show... We would start to rehearse the spade show at 10 in the morning. Then I think we went on at 5 to 5.30 here, mm -hmm. and then probably later repeat, transcription record repeat. So about 2, I had to go over to the skeleton show. So they, between 1 and 2, and the others were sent out to lunch, Howard would stay there with me, and we would tape my opening and closing stuff. And I have those. I bought oh, those really? little records, uh -huh. Uh -huh. so I have them. I love to hear <laughs> Effie and Sam. Oh, it's, they're the most adorable love scenes ever written in the history of show business, uh, I think. Sam Spade, Howard Duff, uh, remembers the license number of his car. Uh, 37596. Ah, you, you can't spit. forget it either. No, sir. <laughs> Yes? What is it, please? Miss uh, Eugenie Kolchenko? Yes? What is it? Did you lose or misplace a pigeon gray convertible coupe? What are you saying? 
Now, don't be alarmed. I found it, and I brought it home to you. Come in, please. It is a reward you wish. Shall we say... Snap out of it, dragon lady. Who was he? Who was who? The little guy, Leon. You loaned your car to. He's dead. Who was he? Oh, oh no, no. Oh, yes, yes. Eugenie. Darling, darling, come here, please. What's the matter, honey? Who is this man? I came about Miss Kolchenko's car. What about her car? The gentleman who borrowed it couldn't return it on account of he isn't alive. He's dead. Darling, he's dead. Well, that's putting it more bluntly, of course. Dead, then? Huh? Mm, completely. Who are you? Philip Marlowe, private investigator. My card. Mm-hmm. You told the police yet? Never do at once what can be deferred pending negotiations. Aesop. I might negotiate. Oh, peachy. What do you know, Marlowe? A man named Waldo was shot in a bar tonight. I happened to have the inside as to who he was, and when I visited his apartment tonight, I found this Leo Valsanos dead. He wouldn't have had $500 in 20s on him, would he? No, but this Waldo had over $700 on him when he was killed at that cocktail bar, mostly in 20s. Mm. Is there a basis there for negotiations yet? Very well, Marlowe. I'm a married man. There were certain unpaid bills for some stuff Miss Kolchenko here had charged to my account. But you told me I might charge to your account. All right, so I wasn't very bright. That might be the understatement of the decade, but go on. I had the unpaid bill safely in my briefcase. Somehow this Waldo had a chance to steal the briefcase. I hired Leon and gave him $500 to buy back those bills from Waldo. Instead, Waldo took Leon's dough and was forced to kill Leon in the process. And then he went out to keep another date and accidentally walked into an old pal hostile enough to blow him down. And someone still has those bills. And I'm in for a divorce suit. The man who shot Waldo got away in Waldo's car with your briefcase in it. Yeah, that could be. The cops caught him. Oh. And the police have the briefcase. Maybe. But the police are interested in solving crime, not in tossing mud for the benefit of sensation eaters. Look, I've got a friend or two at headquarters. Let me see what I can do. It's worth $500 to me. Well, then that's what it'll cost you. Well, good luck. And, um, thank you, Mr., uh... Marlowe. Philip Marlowe, remember? My name is Frank Barsley. Bars... Barsley. Oh. What does that mean? The big hydroelectric engineer? Yeah. How did you know? My voices tell me. Who? Darling, this man is manifestly insane. It's the heat, Miss Kolchenk. It's the Santa Ana. It's the desert wind. May I use your telephone? Someday I must tell you about Ibera. Salt of the Earth, Ibera, Detective Lieutenant over at Central Homicide. I phoned Ibera from Miss Kolchenko's house and told him where he could find a well-dressed cadaver named Leon and furnished a few small details. I gave Ibera time to check my tip and then I went down to see the good lieutenant and told him why I'd been up in Waldo's room, only to find Leon instead of a certain lady's string of pearls. Pearls, eh? Well, I thought Waldo might have them up there. Mm hmm Whose pearls were they? A lady's. Go on. Or they might have been in Waldo's car that Waldo's killer drove away in. Mm, yeah. What, yeah? They might have. 
Also a batch of unpaid bills charged to the account of a certain Frank Barsley? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Well, now, the police aren't interested in domestic scandal. They, They want to prevent or to solve crime, right? So? So I've got $500 for the police fund if those pearls and those bills are returned to their rightful owners. <laughs> Quit your kidding. No, no, it's, it's a valuable necklace. Yeah. There's your necklace. That's it. 41 pearls, perfectly matched diamond propeller clasp. That's it. That's the one. Take it away, Morrow. On the level? Mm-hmm. Just tell me straight what it's all about, all oh, I ask. Sure, sure. Well, this Waldo was blackmailing a wife with the pearls and her husband with the bills, a guy by the name of Barsley. Well, Barsley sent Leon to get the bills from Waldo. Instead, Waldo killed Leon, then stepped out and happened to get shot by that guy at the bar. Now, if Barsley's name stays out of the paper, I get $500, and that goes to the police fund. We'll keep him out. Well, now, I'm not in this case for money. I just want to get back the bills and the pearls. As you say, Morrow, the police aren't in business to sling mud. Well, you can deliver the pearls to the lady yourself if you like. No, she no, lives no, at... No, 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 Morrow. Uh, you better take them to her. You see, except for the diamond propeller clasp on them, they're, uh, They're phony. Phony? But... It... All but the clasp, Morrow. All but the clasp. <laughs> stared at Ibera. So the flyer, Johnny Dalmas, the great lover, had given Lola a string of fake pearls. Well, I didn't know how to tell her, but I called her up and told her to meet me at the beachcombers at two. I was going to slip her the bad news slowly. I'm glad you asked me to meet you here, Mr. Marlowe. See, I... I had to have someone to talk to. Go ahead. Go ahead, talk. I'm listening. Now, Mr. Marlowe, now more than ever, I must... I must have those pearls. Why? Money trouble? Oh, no, no. It's just that everything's gone wrong. And this morning, my husband told me where to separate. Oh, I'm sorry, Lola. But if I had Johnny's pearls, it would be a link with the past and with Johnny. And all he meant to me. It's how a woman feels, Mr. Marlowe. I wouldn't blame you for not understanding. Maybe I do, though. So please, Mr. Marlowe, please. You'll try to find my pearls. Lola, look, I... Even if it isn't all of them. Any part of them. Any... Any single smallest one of them. It'll be Johnny's. Look, will you uh, meet me here again around 4 o'clock? I'll be here. Okay, I'll see what I can do. There was only one earthly decent thing I could do. I took Lola's glass pearls to a jeweler and I had him take off the diamond clasp and put it on one of those strings of so-called simulated pearls that they sell you for three bucks, tax included. Then I went back to keep my four o'clock date with Lola at the beachcombers. Well, Mr. Marlowe, anything new? Yes, the uh, police found some pearls in Waldo's car. They found my pearls? No, no, not not exactly. Not exactly? Well, Waldo was getting set to jip you, Lola. He had the diamond clasp of your necklace attached to a string of cheap imitations. And then he sold the real pearls. Oh, how... Oh. These are the imitations here. Yes. But it is my clasp. The clasp is real. Is that all right? Yes, it's the clasp that Johnny Dalmas gave me. 
Of course, of course it's all right. Oh, that's swell. And thank you so much, Mr. Marlowe. Forget it. I won't. Not ever. Well, is, is this goodbye? Yeah, I think so. You'll never get over it, Johnny Dalmas, Logan. If anybody ever bothers you again, though, well, let me know. Name's Philip Marlowe. I drove almost to Malibu and then I parked and walked out on a rock cliff jutting into the Pacific Ocean. Then I reached in my pocket and dug out the string of bohemian glass pearls that Lieutenant Ibarra had found in Waldo's car. I cut the knot at one end and slipped the pearls off one by one. One by one, I flipped them into the water. The gull swooped down on them and then flapped up again, screaming indignantly. The phony pearls had fooled Waldo and Lola Barsley, but they couldn't fool a seagull. I said to myself, to the memory of Johnny Dalmas, just another four-flusher. I listened a while to the wheeling seagulls. All at once, I realized that the wind had died. The Santa Ana had blown itself out. The red wind was done. It was over. You have just heard Van Heflin starring in the first of a new mystery series, Raymond Chandler's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, brought to you by the Lever Brothers Company, makers of Pepsodent. Have you tried, have you tasted the new Pepsodent toothpaste? Its lingering minty flavor is so fresh and inviting, families prefer it by an overwhelming average of three to one over all other toothpastes in a recent nationwide test. They said new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, and makes teeth brighter. Remember, new Pepsodent gives you more invigorating irium foam. It sweeps dulling film away. No wonder it's the three-to-one favorite with families all over America. Get new Pepsodent with irium for your family right away. Tonight's story on the adventure of Philip Marlowe was based on Red Wind, written by Raymond Chandler, creator of Philip Marlowe, the screen's most famous private detective. It was adapted for radio by Milton Geiger. Heard with Van Heflin was Lorene Tuttle as Lola Barsley. And this is Wendell Niles inviting you to listen again next week at this same time to another exciting story on the adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin with a distinguished cast. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. I always like to work with the top people. I'm not very good when I work with people who are not very good. <laughs> I'm just not. I like to work with people who are vibrant and know their business. I work a thousand times better if I have a challenge. I think it comes from being a Leo, like I am. I just think, you know, because I'm a Leo, I just, I roar that way. Radio catered to inspirational things. Now, not particularly churchy things. I don't mean that word at all. But I mean, radio dramatized lives of great and interesting and meaningful people. Well, I don't see that so much now. 
I don't see uh, anything that I do, you know, anymore, uh, that has any nobility or any ambition or anything that I believe in. I don't get to do parts that I believe in anymore. And it just riles me. It doesn't break my heart. It makes me very angry, truly. But all of these shows were exquisitely written. They had the finest writers in the world in radio. I don't know where they've gone. I don't know whether they've retired or what they're doing. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. I don't think I ever in my own mind think anybody's a villain. Well, he may have his very human side. He may very be very kind to his family. Yes. But in his business, <clears throat> illegitimate, yeah. he may be quite ruthless. Mm. One's got to know these people. You can't invent them. You don't find any, anyone really It's all bad. The June 17th issue of Billboard magazine reviewed the first Marlowe episode. It was noted similar shows were expected to pull a rating of 7.5. Billboard stated that Milton Geiger's adaptation adhered to Red Wind's language almost to the letter and captured most of the colorful, almost poetic flavor. There was a rough desert wind blowing into Los Angeles that evening. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that come down through the mountain passes and curl your hair, make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On the debit side was the enormity of the job breaking down Chandler's complex plotting within the 30-minute limit. The program galloped through the first 15 minutes as the action unfolded. The second half pace slowed down to a crawl, however, as everyone desperately strove to clarify the proceedings. Repeated conjecture and explanation of the cast's intricate relationships unfortunately had confusion rampant by the end. The reviewer was quick to point out that even films found that 90 minutes was hardly enough to cram in all of Chandler's ideas. Perhaps shorter stories would prove more suited for the air. Their flair for mood and language certainly is hard to surpass. Most writers wouldn't have a killer cynically say this to his victim. All right, you other guys. Don't move. So long, Waldo. All right, don't move, you two. Oh, Waldo. 
but I made his nose bleed. So long, boys. Drink up. The commercials were harsh and repetitive, stressing that pepsinant is preferred three to one by American families. Foot cone and building seems to be trying its lucky strike technique on the dentrifice. It's a three to one bet that the incessant three to one chatter becomes as notorious as LS MFT. Now families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste, new pepsidant with irium, new fresh tasting pepsidant with a new cool minty flavor. It's the three to one favorite over all other toothpastes. It's true. With families all over America, new Pepsodent is the favorite three to one. On the lead, Billboard stated, Heflin's emoting in the role of the tough guy with a heart was effective, with excellent character projection. Loreen Tuttle, as the woman in the case, put on her usual good performance. Producer James Fonda struggled valiantly to keep the pace level, but was handcuffed by the urgency of the story. You had an appointment with him, didn't you? Why? Listen, he asked for you, didn't he? Yes, I had an appointment with him. He'd stolen something from me when he left three days ago. I was going to buy it back from him. Why didn't you tell the police? I couldn't tell them. It was valuable, wasn't it? Valuable enough for Waldo to steal? $15,000. Oh, it's peanuts. But it wasn't the value. It meant something to me. The man I love gave it to me, and now he's dead. He was a flyer shot down over Germany. I'll go back and tell my husband that. He probably hired you. He did? How much is he paying me? And uh, where is this husband of yours? He's at a meeting. This late at night? He's a very important man. He's a hydroelectric engineer. I'll have you know that my husband oh, is one of the... skip it. I'll take him out to lunch sometime and have him tell me himself. The script contained an inside joke. The name of Lola's dead lover was changed to Johnny Dalmas, the name of the original detective in Chandler's Red Wind, before the story became Marlowe's. I said to myself, to the memory of Johnny Dalmas, just another four-flusher. Chandler thought it was flat. Van Heflin was too recognizable. He didn't like picturing Heflin's face emoting Marlowe's lines. Earl Stanley Gardner told Chandler the show's plot and narration moved too fast to be understood. There was a bigger argument at stake within the industry. Were summer replacements a worthwhile investment? Sponsor Magazine claimed that it cost advertisers money to take a 13-week hiatus. It was money lost in the form of lower summertime ratings. But you couldn't just blame it on summer replacements, though. For example, Bob Hope's 46-47 rating was 27.6, but his combined rating for June and September 1947 was 14.4. People spent more time outdoors in warm months. It didn't matter what was on the air. Plus, there was still no way to effectively measure car radio ratings. Given that Hope Show cost $21,000 weekly dollars to produce, while Marlowe cost just $4,000, Pepsinet was getting a bargain. By the end of summer, Marlowe was the highest-rated summer replacement series on the air.
did you feel that by doing two or three voices in a, a show that you were uh, thinning down the pay that you were getting? Would they hire you to do three or four voices? Well, in the beginning, that mm -hmm. was true. And then when AFTRA, the forerunner of AFTRA, came in, why there was a provision on doubling. You could do one voice. And if you did more than that, you got a, a, another fee. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, uh, in later years changed so that you got a fee for whatever you did. Tom, that was one of the things in radio, which uh, doesn't apply to television. You could play anything you could sound. Anything you could sound and, like. Uh, we all did many different characters on the same show a lot of times. That was your value to the producer or the director, that you we, could double and we were triple sometimes? We were hireable because uh -huh. they knew we could do a couple of different characters. On June 8, 1947, NBC broadcast an adaptation of The King in Yellow, originally published in Dime Detective magazine in March of 1938. It's a seedy saga of a hot trumpet player whose boorish behavior gets him killed. For the safety of your smile, use Pepsodent twice a day. See your dentist twice a year. Lever Brothers Company presents the Pepsodent program, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Philip Marlowe, the famous private detective of Murder, My Sweet and The Lady in the Lake, created by Raymond Chandler, brought to you on the air by Pepsodent and starring MGM's dynamic young actor, Van Heflin. Now, families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste, New Pepsodent with Irium. New, fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new, cool, minty flavor. It's preferred three to one over any other toothpaste. It's true. With families all over America, new Pepsodent is a favorite three to one. Families from coast to coast recently compared new Pepsodent with the toothpaste they were using at home. They preferred new Pepsodent by an overwhelming average of three to one over any other brand they tried. These families, three to one, said new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Yes, families, three to one, say new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Get new Pepsodent toothpaste for your family right away. Now, Van Heflin in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Hollywood after midnight is like any other city after midnight. Night moves in and the city becomes hushed and stealthy. The nightclubs close up one by one, but now and then the police whistle and the prowl car sirens serenade the sleeper. If you've got any cop in you at all, you get on edge and you have to get dressed and go out and walk it off to relax. Well, I was relaxing past the Swank Carlton Hotel on the Sunset Strip about 1 a.m. when all of a sudden, recess was over. Hey, Marlo. Hmm? That you, Marlo? It was George Millar, the quiet-spoken night clerk of the Carlton, hailing me from the doorway. 
probably to Mucha Melacrino. No, I was wrong. Hey, look, Marlo. Uh, you very busy right now? Why, Miller? If I may be as cagey as all that. We've got some, well, some trouble on the eighth floor. Where's Curly, your fearless house dick? Tonight he has to have a hangover. What's the beef on floor eight? King Leopardi. Do you know him? King Leopardi? Oh, that's the sweetest trump at this side of Gabriel. Is he tenting here tonight? He's in the corridor on the eighth floor, dressed in yellow pajamas, and he's trumpet. There's a girl with him, and they put him on a jam session. Well, suppose the king rejects my diplomatic notes. Well, uh, get rough, but only if you have to. Okay, thanks. But a guy with such an ear for music ought to listen to reason. All right, I'll be down five minutes, Malar. <laughs> King, the party's over. Hey! Were you addressing me, peasant? I said, wrap it up, Cannon. Put it on ice. The show is over. Ha! Conk him, King. King Conk! That's what he is, King Conk! Let him have it, King. Fanfare to a nosy house dick. As follows. <laughs> All right, now look, yellow pants. Wrap up your bugle and buzz off. Now hit the grit. Oh, you're tougher than a 40-cent steak, aren't you? Well, this will make you soft and tender. Here! Attaboy, King. Hit him again for me. All right, hit me with that trumpet, will you? Okay, King. Ooh. <gasps> right, now, come on. Get up, get dressed, and get out. How can he? He's out cold. I'll be glad to pack for him. And you get back to your room, too. Listen, copper, I don't have to do get anything. Get going, sister. Come on, jump. door to room 815 was ajar. I went in and began tossing a lot of that yellow silk that the king liked so well into his suitcases. Something at the small desk stopped me. Tucked under the corner of the desk blotter was a note. It was assembled from words and letters cut out of newspapers and pasted on a telegraph blank. It said, ten grand by Thursday night, Leopardi, or else. Her brother... I slipped the note in my pocket and went out in the corridor just as the king staggered past me into his room. I could get an infection from the dirty look he gave me as he slammed the door after him. The door two suites away opened a crack and then shut again very quickly. I went over and knocked. Beat it, copper! I want to talk to you! I don't want to hear from you! Okay, here I come, sister, ready or not! I'll blow you down, so help me, I'll let you have it. Lay that pistol down, babe. Come on, Get come on. Get out you pick up weight you didn't count on. And what would the little girl be doing with a twenty-five automatic, I wonder? A girl needs protection with insects like <laughs> you around. Look, what's your name? Little Bo Peep. Okay, but what does little boy blue with a horn mean to you? I admire his work. Do you know King Leopardi? No. Well, what are you doing in a place like this? I can tell you can't afford it. What's your angle? I won a soap contest. All right, baby, you want it that way? What are you going to do? I'm going to make a phone call. It won't cost you a nickel. Hello, desk. Millar? Miss Marlowe. I'm calling for the lady in room 811. She's checking out. I had a little trouble up there, Millar. Your two noisy guests will be checking out any minute. 
Okay. Oh, well, I hate for things to happen on my shift. Well, the king bopped me with his bugle and the girl had a gun. Gee, nice people. Yeah, how come you put a floozy like that girl so close to the king? Well, I didn't. Another Quinn, thing. the day man did. Look, there was a receipt for rent to Miss Marilyn Delorme on the telephone table in her room. Well, that wasn't the name she gave Quillen. Apartment 211, Ridgeland Apartments, Cord Street, L.A. She lives right in town in a cheap neighborhood, but she checks in here at a price she can't afford and gives a phony name. Now, why? Why? Cord Street, where Marilyn Delorme lived, was Old Town. Arty Town, Crook Town. It was afternoon when I got off the cogwheel car that climbs the steep hill to where the Ridgeland apartment sat on the top of Bunker Hill. I went up dim, dusty stairs to apartment 211, and I tapped on the door. There was no answer, so I tried the door. It was unlocked. The room inside was dim with stagnant gloom. Marilyn Delorme was in. I didn't talk to her, though. I didn't think she'd want to make much conversation with those blue bruises about her throat where she'd been strangled. I got out of there fast, wiping off doorknobs like Uriah Heap polishing apples for his boss. Among those featured in this episode were Gerald Moore, Gloria Blondell, Bill Johnstone, Willard Waterman, and Howard McNear. Here's actor and friend Parley Bear with a funny Howard McNear story. You know, when, uh, <laughs> when we did the two gun smokes and then on Sunday, what was it, Johnny Dollar's at the last time? He used to do five on the, the Sunday when it was five fifteen 15 minute episodes. Yeah, we yeah, did them right. all. Yeah. And uh, I used to pick Howard up. He lived between my house and the studio. And uh, he, he would come out and he, until he was ill, he really wasn't. <laughs> but he, he always prepared for it. And he came <laughs> kind of slithering out of the car and he said, oh, thank you for picking me up. You're welcome. Get in, get in, let's go. He said, are you doing Johnny Dollar tomorrow? Said, yes. Will you pick me up? Yes. He said, I called Norman. He said, I've got a heavy part in both of these shows tomorrow. And I'm in all five of those tomorrow. My God, I don't know how I'm going to stand it, and I'm so grateful for the work. <laughs> I found King Leopardi at his job at the Club Belvedere. He was relaxing at a table in the bar with a kind of a girl commonly referred to as a knockout. She looked tall, and her hair was the color of a brush fire seen through clouds of dust. I pulled in my chin and then walked over to the table. Hello, Leopardio Maestro. You remember me? I'm sorry. I can't say that I... Why, you dirty keyhole snoopers. King, please don't start anything again. You left a certain little note in your hotel room last night. Get out, night. time a dozen. That wasn't all. That dame with you I last night. I said beat it. King, sit down. Beat it and take this with you. <clears throat> There's not much snap in that punch, King. Would you like to try it again? I, uh, have had some drinks. I'll see you later when I'm okay. See you later, too, Dolores, after the floor show. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Miss, uh... Sit down. 
You've made us conspicuous enough as it is. Uh, now, wait a minute. Sit Look, down. Let's get... uh, all right, thanks. Well, that's what I get for being a little gentleman and letting him pepper me without a comeback. Oh, he's always spoiling for a fight. Uh, the king just can't control his dukes, can he? You better have a drink. All right. Coke with bitters. <laughs> that's what I love about Hollywood. You meet so many eccentrics. <laughs> yeah, but you see, I'm the kind of a guy who starts with a short beer and wakes up in Shanghai with a full beard. <laughs> <laughs> is this on me or is it on you? Well, that depends. Well, how champagne? Mum's cordon rouge, shall we say, huh? It's on you. It's on me. <laughs> Coke with betters. <laughs> how did you get to know King Leopardi? Oh, I just happened to throw him out of his hotel last night. Oh, house detective, huh? No, no, no. Filling in for a friend. Philip Marlowe, private investigator, is the general tag. Oh. How did you happen to get to know the king? I once sang in his band, but not for long. Uh, well, then, look, tell me, uh, would it be hard for a woman to get to him? Only if he was surrounded by a wall of fire. If the woman had a gun. Why? Well, I found this threat note on his desk last night. It asked for $10,000 or else, and is signed, her brother. Well? Well? Yes. A woman with a gun could get to him, and everybody would give her a great big hand. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll skip that Coke and Bitters and say good day and thank you, Christabel. The name is Dolores. Oh, good afternoon, Miss Drury. Kioza. Dolores Kioza. Oh, Kioza. Fare thee well, Miss Kioza. <laughs> Formal, aren't you? <laughs> so long, Dolores. So long, Philip. If I hear of anything, I'll toss it your way. The evening papers carried a squib about Marilyn Delorme found strangled in her Cord Street apartment. That was all dead end. Until about one o'clock in the morning when the telephone started having hysterics on my night table. Yeah? Philip, this is Dolores. Dolores? Dolores? Oh, oh, yeah, sure. Would you come over to my place right away? 2412 Renfrew Street, below Fountain. Hey, wait a minute. It's a sort of bungalow court. Mine is the last one in line. But sure, but wait a minute. What's the matter? Dolores, look, what's the matter? King Leopardi is here, too. King Leopardi. He passed out of my den. It's absurd, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's absurd, and it'll cost you 20 bucks. All right, but hurry. Please hurry. All right, I'll be right over. Phone calls in the dead of night. I should have been a midwife. Come in, Philip. I'm sorry I woke you at this hour. That's okay. I always get up around this time anyhow to take my bitters and answer phone calls. Where is he? Uh, may I have a cigarette? Sure. Thanks. Right? Where did you say he was now? In my den. Oh, Philip... Philip, he isn't drunk at all. Did you really think he was drunk? He's dead. What? The king is dead. Long live the... With my 
can't. Well, good for you. The lady wins the large cutie doll. Hey, come on, let's go and look at him. You are listening to The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Yes, families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste. New Pepsodent with invigorating irium foam. New fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new cool minty flavor. It's preferred three to one over any other toothpaste. It's true. Families all over America say New Pepsodent is their favorite three to one. The Paul A. Thompson family, Summer Street, Stanford, Connecticut, preferred New Pepsodent on every single count. The Thompsons say New Pepsodent tastes best of all, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. On all these counts, by an overwhelming average of three to one, families prefer New Pepsodent over any other toothpaste they tried. It's a fact. Families three to one say New Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, and makes teeth brighter. Remember, this is not just our opinion. It's the honest conviction of the Thompsons and other families who compared new Pepsodent with the toothpaste they were using at home. Get new Pepsodent, the only toothpaste containing irium. Get it for your family without delay. We continue with the adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin who appears by arrangement with Metro-Golden-Mare, producers of The Huckster, starring Clark Gable. Delores showed me to the den in the back of the house... Trumpet man King Leopardi was lying on the studio couch, large, smooth, and artificial looking even in death. A small Mauser automatic hung loosely in his right hand. There was a bullet hole in his golden yellow sport coat right over his heart. Dolores, is this your gun? Uh, yes. Someone gave it to me once. I. I don't even know how to use it. Oh, no. Oh, I don't expect you or anyone to believe me. Don't expect anything. Just tell it. Well, I... I I was out late. I sing at KFQC on a late 15-minute program. Agatha and I got home about 11.30. Who's Agatha? The cat? My maid. Hmm. I came into the den for some liquor and fizz water and... found him. Like that. I sent Agatha home so she wouldn't find him. Finally, I thought of calling you. Well, he got in here. How? I don't know. Were you ever in love with him? The king never loved anyone. I asked if you loved him. I hated everything about him. It's even better to tell the cops that is, but copacetti. But I can't help it. It's the truth. Dolores, look. (laughs) Go on out in the other room and buy yourself a drink. I want to be alone here with tall, dead, and handsome. Go on now, huh? Here's Willard Waterman, later famous as the second man to play Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, talking with Chuck Shaden about his early days in Chicago radio. Everybody that I've spoken with uh, about the radio days in Chicago have told me about 
the dash from the Merchandise Mart to the Tribune Tower yeah. to uh, the Wrigley Building. That's right. We you all, part of that? All, we uh, all did that. Bridges uh, Up group? <laughs> yeah, I once did. I had one time I was on three networks within 45 minutes. I did a show <laughs> on CBS called Bachelor Children. It happened inadvertently. Somebody forgot, didn't see the name in the script, and so I wasn't called. And the last minute they called me and said, hey, you're in today. That was on, I don't remember the day, time, 10.45 or something like that. And then the program on WGN Mutual was on from 10.45 to 11, 11 to 11.15, and then the one on NBC called Thunder in the Air was on from 11.15 to 11.30. So all of a sudden I turned in up in all three of them the same day, and I did the show on CBS, Bachelor Children, ran across the street to the Tribune Tower mm -hmm. and up in the um, elevator, which I had greased the, <laughs> the man. And then I had a cab waiting for me down in the lower level under uh, the Tribune Tower, and I dashed down when the commercial came on, into the cab across Kinsey Street, which doesn't mm -hmm. take the bridge into yes. consideration. Mm -hmm. I have to worry about that. And in the uh, one on Thunder in the Air, I was supposed to be in the first three or four minutes, <laughs> and then another scene. So they reversed the two scenes, oh. and I had about three minutes plus the commercials, and the commercials on the other end to make the show. And I had an elevator waiting for me, and ran me up, and I went to the studio and picked up the script. And so I don't know how many other times that was done, but. I was on three networks in 45 minutes. You were probably, cabs were speeding in the other direction from <laughs> Doing the same Marvin thing. Miller coming the other direction or somebody yeah. like that. We all did that working in the soaps because uh, there were a lot of conflicts. By the late 1940s, many of Chicago's radio stars had migrated to Hollywood, working on shows across all four networks. Here's Lorreen Tuttle talking about her experiences. Were really all over radio. Oh, I should you? say I was. I used yeah. to do all kinds of voices mm. too. I still can. I can go down to McGregor and sometimes do a little little tiny girl. Can you, you know? give us a little? Could you give us a little girl? Let me see. On a, um, a show over at CBS Television City, I had to play a doll not too long ago. Let's see if I can get that voice again. Somebody pushed the you know, little string on the doll, and I had to, uh -huh. I had to run upstairs and uh, put my face into the microphone and and uh, be the doll while they were working the doll uh -huh. on the on the downstairs. Nobody knew the difference. Nobody knew I was doing. See, Howard Duff was right. He said you have to talk to Lorreen Tuttle because she's a doll. Oh, how sweet! <laughs> oh. After Dolores had taken her white face out of that room, I could work better. I went through the king's pocket and found his key ring. One key fit very nicely in the lock of the back door. I went to the living room where Dolores was huddled against the arm of the Davenport trying to become a part of the pattern. Dolores, how long has Agatha been with you? Two years. Hmm. Did you ever steal anything from you? Small things, that's all. A pair of nylons now and then. I, I didn't mind why. Well, she sold a key to somebody key to this apartment. Oh, what's the difference, Philip? We're wasting time. I'm done for as a nice person. 
So think it was a lover's quarrel and I shot him. Or that he shot himself over me. Well, you don't die from the latter, though. Your reputation does. And I care about what people think of me. Yeah. Well, that's what makes me for you again, lady. Thanks, Philip. Now, look, suppose you give me a description of Agatha and tell me where she lives. I want to talk to her. Tonight. I drove down Brighton Avenue looking for the house Dolores had described to me. All at once, I slammed on my brakes. In the driveway of a vacant house stood a small coupe. Dolores had described Agatha's car, and that was it. And Agatha did not live in an empty house. I got out and walked up the gravel driveway and looked into the car. And then I got back in my own car and drove until I found an all-night drugstore. I phoned Detective Lieutenant Ibera. Hello, Ibera. Write this down. Brighton Avenue, 3200 block, west side, driveway of empty house. Car parked with dead woman in it. When alive, answered to the name of Agatha. Strangled. I went back to the Carlton Hotel where it all started the night before. Quillen, the head day clerk, was on night duty. That surprised me a little bit. It was 2 a.m. and very empty, very quiet in the lobby. That was fine. Well, if it isn't Marlowe, the old clues man. A good, good morning. And tripe like that. Hello, Quillen. Look, how come you're on duty? Millar went on vacation this a.m. His brother has a cabin at Crestline on the Arrowhead Road. Well, I didn't even know he had a brother. Now you know. Quillen, look, how come an old hotel man like you registers floozies like that Marilyn Delorme on the same floor with people like King Leopardi? What? You heard me, mine host. I didn't register the girl or Leopardi. Millar did. What? You heard me. Well, why was the room between their rooms empty last night in times like these? Well, Millar had it marked on change. Plumbing out of whack or something. Why? Oh. Well, here's why. A lad with a pass key could have gone into that room and then unlocked the two connecting doors. And then you could have run a bus service between the girls' room and Leopardi's. What are you driving at? That girl in 811 had a gun and Leopardi had a threat letter last night. Now, here's what I want you to do. Call the hotel where Leopardi's staying now and ask if he's there. Why? Because... Good enough? Best reason in the world. Wife always uses it. Wait here. In about three minutes, Quillen came back and leaned on the counter again. Leopardi isn't there. I talked to a guy in his suite who was almost sober. He said Leopardi got a call about 11 from some girl. What girl? Well, he didn't know. But Leopardi went out preening himself. Hmm. Okay, thanks, Colin. Anything to do with that brawl you had with Leopardi here last night? No, all in the spirit of boyish mayhem. Ah, that, uh, that 815 has a jinx on it, you know. Girl shot herself there two years ago. What? A girl shot herself there. Yeah, yeah, you said that, but what girl? I don't know what her real name was. Look here, Quillen. I want to see your hotel files of that day two years ago and all the newspaper clippings about it. Come on. All right, all right. Let go of my arm, physical culture. I'll get the keys to the record room. I read the hotel files of that day two years ago, and I read the newspaper clippings of that suicide in 815. 
Then I asked Quillen just where George Millar's brother had his cabin in the mountains. It was just getting light when I pulled up at the cabin high against a growth of dagger pine and cedar. Smoke was curling from the chimney. Someone was awake. George Millar himself opened the door. Well, Marlowe! Well, gee, it's good to see you. How'd you ever find us up here? Uh, how about some bacon and eggs? The answer in my brief Marlowe morning manner is yes. Well, that's well. Uh, I'll wake up my brother and we'll all eat together. Huh? You don't have to wake me up. I'm up. Oh, oh, hello, Gareth. Who's your friend, George? Uh, Gaff, this is Philip Marlowe. You've heard me talk of him. How are you, Marlowe? Gaff Pally. That the name? Yeah, my brother. That's his fighting name. He used to be a heavyweight boxer. Fighter. Boxers dance. Fighters fight. Well, uh, let's get coffee started. Huh? Marlowe's hungry. Yeah, say, I'm, I've had a busy night. King Leopardi's been bumped off. Uh, bumped off? Lowbrow for killed. Vernacular for murdered. The king is dead, though. Uh, where? Uh, how did... In a girl's apartment. Nice girl, too. The old suicide gag. But it could ruin the girl. Oh, gee, that's lousy. I... Yeah. Yeah, but it won't work. It was murder. What makes you think it was murder? Well, Gaff, the way I cased the job, the kill was supposed to have been pulled in his room, 815 at the Carlton Hotel, night before last. Uh, is that a fact now? Yeah. I spoiled it by giving the king the merry heave-ho before the girl in 811 could get to him. Didn't I, George? Uh, I guess you did, Marlowe. Yeah. Of course, it would have been poetic justice if King Leopardi had been killed in the same room where a girl committed suicide two years ago. Registered as Mary Smith. Usual name, Eve Talley. Did you hear that, Gaff Talley? Eve Talley. I heard it, Marlowe. So we had a sister named Eve. Shot herself in 815 at the Carlton. So what? So, George here told me that Quillen registered that professional gun girl in 815 night before last. Oh, no. George registered her. So? So George kept the room between the girl and Leopardi vacant. When everything was quiet, he had opened the communicating doors, and Marilyn Delorme would walk into the king's room, muffle her twenty-five in a pillow, and shoot the king in his sleep. How am I doing, boys? Fine, Marlowe. How am I doing? Uh, Gaff, put away that gun. I'll bet you even checked on 118 Cord Street. Mm -hmm. I found Marilyn Delorme strangled. She knew too much. For a few bucks, you boys got Agatha to call Leopardi last night from the radio station and pretend she was Dolores with an interesting invitation. The king always had a yen for Dolores, and he came running. You shot the king before Dolores came home and left him in her den. Then Gaff got rid of Agatha. She knew too much, too. Leopardi was the worst kind of a rat, Marlowe. We loved our sister. She fell for him, and he threw her out. She killed herself. Now, what would you do, Marlowe? Take his gun, George. Don't get between us or behind him. His 45 goes right on through. Uh, I'll have to take your gun, Marlowe. Yeah. Well, always treat it like your own, won't you, George? Got it, George? I've got it. Stand out of the way. Does it have to be this way, Gaff? Yeah, it has to be this sure, way. Sure, George and Gaff, the avengers of innocent girlhood in their righteous indignation. Shut up, Marlowe. Lynch mobs, tar and feather merchants, and other laws unto themselves take notice. George and Gaff, they wrote the book. Say your prayers, big mouth. Gaff, there's been enough killing. Get out of the No, way. Gaff, I won't. I swear I'll let you have it. No, Gaff! I'm warning you. Goodbye, Gaff. Uh, uh. 
Well, I'm... I'm sorry, Jack. I had to do it. George. He's dead. So I had to do it, Gab. I just had to. You understand, don't you, Marlo? He was a killer. He killed three people. He wasn't going to kill a fourth. I wanted to finish Leopardo out in the open and take what came, but Gaff tried to do it cute. I didn't know Leopardo was dead until you told me, Marlowe. I... I believe you, George. Yeah. Here's your gun back, Marlowe. It shoots fine. <laughs> I put in a big pitch for George at headquarters. After all, he hadn't killed anybody except Gaff, and that was in self-defense and in defense of an unofficial copper named Marlowe. He won't go get off scot-free, but he won't inhale cyanide either at the taxpayer's expense. After I talked to Ibera at headquarters, I telephoned Dolores Chiosa. I didn't give her the sordid details, but just told her not to worry that she was in the clear. Philip... Oh, thank you, Philip. I'm so relieved. I'm so grateful. I'm so thirsty. Well, come on over then. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, is this fiesta on you or is it on me? Why? Well, I mean, do I drink Coke and bitters or Cordon Rouge? It's on me. <laughs> All right, then. Champagne it is, baby. But look, let me bring the glasses, huh? <laughs> You have just heard Van Heflin starring in the new mystery series, Raymond Chandler's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, brought to you by the Lever Brothers Company, makers of Pepsodent. Van Heflin will return in just a moment. Men, here's an important announcement. News about a sensational hair tonic discovery. It's trim hair tonic made by Pepsodent. By the end of July, Marlowe's 8.0 rating was seventh overall, and the show's production cost just one dollar per the number of urban listeners. Because it contains pure virgin olive oil, trim hair tonic conditions your scalp as it grooms your hair. Get new trim hair tonic during the big one-cent introductory sale at toilet goods counters now. Two 60-cent bottles, $1.20 value, only 61 cents. Ask for trim hair tonic with olive oil. Concerning next week's show, here's our star, Van Heflin. Philip Marlowe crouched in the darkness of Beverly Glen and waited for those footsteps to come closer. And then all at once, the sandman hit him without bothering to remove the sand from the sandbag. And when Marlowe woke up in the morning, his wallet and his gun were gone. And he was wanted for murder. Tonight's story was adapted by Milton Geiger from The King in Yellow by Raymond Chandler, creator of Philip Marlowe, the screen's most famous private detective. The original music was composed and conducted by Lynn Murray. This is Wendell Niles inviting you to listen again next week at the same time to another exciting mystery on the adventures of Philip Marlowe starring Van Heflin with a distinguished cast. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company.
I did the radio show, and then we went to television. And it was just marvelous. Dick Crenna was funny and wonderful in it, and grew up on it. Jeff was in the radio show. Was he Ira Grassell then? I think he was still Ira Grassell. Right. That was his name before Jeff Chandler, and I think that was his name then. Yes, and then he went into pictures right away. And, and While we're talking about him, when I was coming along in the 50s and going to movies and seeing Jeff Chandler, he was really the epitome of tough male action. And yeah. I think I was somewhat shocked when I went back and started listening to Armis Brooks on tape yeah. to find out what a real comedic talent this man was. Yes, yes, he was. He loved the show, though. He really wanted to go into TV with it. But he would never have done on TV because he was so macho in appearance. And I remember at Christmas, we always had to be careful because he had to kiss Miss Brooks. And he took it very seriously then. And the audience was kind of astounded. Hmm. And Bob Rockwell, of course, made it a very good Mr. Boynton because he was a little less macho than, than Jeff. And yet he had a nice male quality, you know. Oh, uh, you mean then the decision to use um, uh, Bob Rockwell on television was made because they didn't think Jeff Chandler would fit the part? Well, partially that, but really, Jeff was becoming a big movie star. That's what I thought. And the studio wanted him to do it, but he was very sentimental about the show and wanted to stay on. But they finally persuaded him that that was the thing to do. The August 8th episode of Philip Marlowe was called Robin and the Hood. Jeff Chandler guest starred playing a dual role. Born Ira Grissel in Brooklyn, New York on December 15, 1918, he acted in high school with classmate Susan Hayward. Chandler went to the Fekin School of Dramatic Art and had a stint with a theater troupe. He served in the Pacific, finishing World War II as a lieutenant. After being discharged in December of 1945, he moved to Los Angeles. By August of 1947, he was all over radio as one of Hollywood's reliable character men. That autumn, he was cast as the lead in The New Adventures of Michael Shane, a syndicated show produced by Bill Rousseau and Don W. Sharp. Yeah, let's see, maybe friend of death. Yep. And then, now where's that folder on the Virgin Islands? Yeah, yeah, yep. Come in. And then maybe Havana on the way back. Sloppy Joes, girls, and... Well, hello. Michael Shane? Mm-hmm. Hello, Mike. Oh? Helen. Helen. Hey, sit down. Thanks. From the looks of all those travel folders on your desk, I'd say you were planning a trip. No, just taking a poor man's vacation. In July of 1948, Chandler was cast opposite Eve Arden in Howard Miss Brooks. Miss Brooks? Yes, Mr. Boynton? Come here, baby. 
said, come here, Connie. You did not. You said, come here, baby, and I'm here. <laughs> Look, he's taking her over to the mistletoe. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Well, 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 what are you going to do, Mr. Boynton? Now, just call me Phil, Connie. And this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Oh, I feel like I'm in a dream, Philip. A wonderful, beautiful dream. But on August 8th, 1947, he was featured on The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. For the safety of your smile, use Pepsodent twice a day. See your dentist twice a year. Lever Brothers Company presents the Pepsodent program, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Philip Marlowe, the screen's most famous private detective, created by Raymond Chandler and brought to you on the air by Pepsodent, and starring MGM's brilliant and dynamic young actor, Van Heflin. Now families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste, New Pepsodent with Irium. New, fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new, cool, minty flavor. Yes, in a recent test, new Pepsodent was preferred three to one over any other toothpaste. It's true. With families all over America, new Pepsodent is the favorite three to one. Families from coast to coast recently compared new Pepsodent with a toothpaste they were using at home. They preferred new Pepsodent by an overwhelming average of three to one over any other brand they tried. These families, three to one, said new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Yes, in a recent survey, families three to one said new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Get new Pepsodent toothpaste for your family right away. Now we invite you to hear Van Heflin as the Hollywood private eye, Philip Marlowe. Quiet. <coughs> you there, Marlowe. Quiet. Oh, Quiet, sorry. you're on a bell. All right. Roll them. Speed. Action. Oh, Robin, my dear, don't you remember me? For all that my hair is cut so short. Mary. Maid Mary. Your very own Maid Marion, Robin, dearest. Fry of talk, little John. Free Englishmen, archers all. It's made Marion. Good. That's it. Print it. All right. That's a wrap up here. Move over to stage three. They were filming a new Technicolor version of Robin Hood over at the big studios in Santa Monica Boulevard, and I was there on salary at the request of the director of the picture. 
Robin Hood and Maid Marian came off the set. Robin Hood was a magnificent sight in his Lincoln green and carrying that big English longbow and quiver of arrows. Maid Marian in her slinkily cut medieval white gown was something to make more than an arrow whistle. They spied me and walked over to me quickly. Mr. Philip Marlowe? Yeah, that's right. My name is Seward Spencer. Yeah, I know. This is my leading lady, Ginny Kane. Yeah, I know. How do you do, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, I, oh, uh, how do you do, Miss Kane? Let's go over to stage nine and talk, shall we, Marlowe? Talk? Every time I open my mouth on one of these sets, somebody hollers, Quiet! Quiet! You see? Whatever happened to free speech in America? In Hollywood, anyway. Stage nine isn't a set. It's a little cafe across the street on Santa Monica. Oh. We have a lot to talk about, Marlowe. Oh, I know. Let's go. Demetro Sador, my director, hired you for what is to me a very embarrassing reason. It seems I'm supposed to protect you. And I feel very well able to take care of myself. Well, it's not safe with that half-mad brother of yours at large. Did, uh, did Mr. Sador tell you the whole story, Marlowe? I said for me to get it from you. Well, it was my fault that we ever sent for Caxton. But he's my brother, and he looks like me, and he's an absolutely terrific archer. Seward here is much better looking, though. Seward is the bow, but Caxton is the bowman, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, they could have faked the scenes where I'm supposed to perform marvels of archery, but, well, we were all against that. Man, I remembered my brother, a sporting goods salesman in Philadelphia, and the champion archer. And so you suggested that they send for Caxton to double for you in the shooting scenes, huh? Yes, in spite of the fact that Caxton hates the sight of him. Go on. I told Mr. Sador he could get the shots he needed with Caxton doubling for me. I'd go to my lodge at Big Bear during those three days. Caxton always resented Seward here because he made good and Caxton didn't. Now, let's see. There was something about Caxton leaving Hollywood, only not leaving Hollywood. What about that? Well, he never picked up the return ticket that the studio reserved for him at the airport. You figure that Caxton's still in town, then, huh? Definitely. Hmm. You think he'd pick a fight with you? He, uh... He picked a fight with Freddie Cole. Who's Freddie Cole? A perfectly harmless makeup man on the lot. And all Freddie asked was for Caxton to wear brown contact lenses over his eyes so he'd look like Seward here for the medium close-ups. My brother has blue eyes, you see. And he wouldn't wear the brown contact lenses, huh? Well, he refused flatly. He said, let my big-shot brother wear blue contact lenses. <laughs> what an unreasonable creature. I don't know. It sounds reasonable to me. You said that he uh, he fought with the makeup man, huh? Yes, but not for long. Freddy's half Caxton's size, but he knocked my brother kicking. Ooh. I suppose your brother swore to get him for that. How did you know? I don't know. Instinct. Philip Marlowe. Oh, oh, here, Mr. Sater, here. Mr. Marlowe, this is terrible, simply terrible. They just found Fred Cole in Sherwood Forest. He's been shot. Shot? What? How? Who? I don't know who. But there's two feet of arrow sticking out of his back. Oh. You better show me where Fred is, Mr. Sadio. Come on, let's go on the double. Sherwood Forest is a wood where Doug Fairbanks Sr. made the silent version of Robin Hood. And they've called it that ever since. Freddie Cole was lying across the steps of the trailer that served as a field makeup room in Sherwood Forest. Mr. Sader's information was not correct. There were not two feet of arrow sticking out of Freddy's back. It was less than 18 inches. A bow of terrific power had done that job. 
Another trailer stood across the clearing from Freddy's body about 100 yards away. I walked through the clearing and knocked on the door. Yes, sir? The name's Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective. Oh, it's about poor Freddy. That's right. Come in, come in. Thank you. Well, I see. This trailer's my workshop, Mr. Marlowe. You have a regular arsenal of bows and arrows in here, haven't you? Yes, sir. I make and repair bows and arrows for the men in the picture. Say, it's about 100 yards from here to where Freddy was shot, isn't it? Just about. Did you ever service the bow of Caxton Spencer, the star's brother? I did. Powerful weapon? Very. Good shot? Very. Bad man? Yes, very. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thanks, Dad. I'll see you. What was that you said? I said I'll see you. You called me something. Oh. Oh, Dad. Yes. So long, Mr. Marlowe. <laughs> so long, Dad. So long, son. So long. murder on this lot is bad enough, but an unsolved murder is worse. I, I am very worried. About your star, Seward uh, Spencer, hmm? Among other things, Mr. Morrow. Why does Spencer, uh, why doesn't he leave town while this homicidal brother of his is still around? Oh, he, he wouldn't go even if I asked him. Besides, every day lost now means money, and the bank wouldn't tolerate any more delays making this picture. Any more delays? Have there been delays? I started making Robin Hood four years ago. I got the set spilled and then had to stop because I couldn't find the ideal man to play Robin Hood. What was the ideal type of the promise, Well, he had to be romantic, good-looking, powerful. Uh, and it would have been helpful if uh, he could shoot a longbow, huh? Yes, yes. Well, Seward Spencer couldn't shoot a longbow four years ago any better than he can today. Now, why, why didn't you hire him four years ago? He wasn't a big enough star then. Oh, he's big enough now, though. Tremendous. He's another Gable. Hmm. So he doesn't have to know how to shoot a longbow now. No, especially since his brother, who resembles him closely, could shoot a longbow. Tell me, where did uh, Spencer stay while his brother was whooping it up here at the studio? Spencer had a lodge up at the Big Bear. Why? Any ideas? Maybe. Look, Spencer is known all over the world, right? That is correct. Now, his double would have a hard time hiding out unless he hid in places where people expected uh, Seward to be, right? I hadn't thought about it. Where exactly is Spencer's lodge, Big Bear? You... You think his brother may be up there, posing as Spencer? I don't know. It's an idea. Where did you say that lodge was now? Marlowe's announcer, Wendell Niles, spent years working with Bob Hope. That's hard for me when I try to think. <laughs> Nothing always happens. You're not alone, kiddo. Yeah. <laughs> Something to be said for notes. Oh, there's a lot of fun. Yeah. We great. Bob just lives two blocks from me down in, mm -hmm. over in uh, Toluca Lake. So you're still, you get to see him every once in a while. Oh, again, yeah. Even though yeah, all he's, uh, he's great. He's uh, two years older than I am, and you know, I've learned to respect my elders. And he's... <laughs> A wonderful guy. He's, he was a great person to be with all the time. And it was a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. On the Hope shows, as I understand it, there would be a, an hour-long rehearsal in front of an audience after which they would start editing material for the half-hour show. Didn't that happen for some time? No. 
Okay, this is it. Thank you and good night. <laughs> I can tell you, many times we didn't rehearse at all. I remember so we were the number one show on the air mm-hmm. at that time. I remember many times, like we'd be doing something like in St. Louis, and out of one of those camps, and uh, you get out of a staff car and go on stage and immediately do our show, no rehearsal, many times, none at all. Just to hand you the script and away it would go. Yeah, that's right. We'd had it sometimes to review the script in the staff car, but many times we didn't have any rehearsal. It was a peachy hunch, and I was proud of it. Proud. Only no one answered my knock when I got up to Spencer's Lodge at Big Bear. Getting in without a key was relatively small pumpkins, but it didn't pay off until I opened a closet door under a staircase. A body didn't fall out, but something else fell out, and I grabbed it before it hit the floor. It was a beautiful example of the bowmaker's art, curved and recurved and polished like glass under the thin layer of dust. I looked closely at the maker's name because I was beginning to get an idea. And then the grandfather of all hornets zinged past my ear. A fraction of an inch from my cheek quivered the shaft of a wicked-looking arrow, its steel head almost buried in the solid oak paneling behind me. A man was standing in the open doorway. Now then, Mr. Marlowe. Hey, what's the what's the idea? Make a move towards your gun, Marlowe, and I'll pin your hand to the wall. Caxton. Yes. Caxton Spencer, right? Yeah. yeah. He was a little taller than his celebrated brother. His cheeks were a little more sunken, and his eyes, unlike his brother's, were an icy, glassy, deadly blue. He shot that second arrow as fast as I could think. Believe it or not, that second arrow split the first one right down to the head. There was another thing about this lad that was different from Seward Spencer. He could shoot a longbow. Brother, could he shoot a longbow. Well, aren't you going to reach for your gun? Well, Robin Hoodlum of Sherwood Forest, huh? You know what might be fun? A contest. The old versus the new. Medieval archer versus 20th century gunman. You know, you're just as crazy as your brother thinks you are. I see Seward's been talking too much again. Look, Caxton, tell me just one thing. You've got your archers mixed up. I'm Robin Hood, remember? Not William Tell. What was this dusty bow doing in the closet? That's mine. Well, how did it get in this closet? I was out here four years ago. Oh, you and your brother were a little friendlier then, huh? My brother wasn't such a big shot then. Beginning to get it, your brother sent for you four years ago to teach him how to shoot. You were looking for someone to play Robin Hood. Your brother wasn't a big enough name then, but he figured if he learned to shoot a longbow well enough, it might make up for other shortcomings. Not bad, genius. The Robin Hood picture was shelved before Seward could learn to shoot, so now he had to send for you again. But you had to quarrel with Freddy Cole and plant an arrow between his shoulder blades. Maybe somebody was celebrating Arbor Day and planting things. Uh-huh, that's very amusing, Jackson. But let me say this. Don't say anything. Just get off this case, understand? Else what? Else this. Only next time, four inches more to the left. Catch? I catch. All right, don't forget it. Just don't you forget it. So long. So long. Keep your bows clean. Hello, operator. 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 
This is a police call. Connect me with the Santa Monica Boulevard Studios of Rheingold Pictures. I want to talk to Mr. Seward Spencer. It's a matter of life and death. And that's no mere figure of speech. You are listening to The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Yes, families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste. New Pepsodent with invigorating irium foam. New fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new cool minty flavor. In a recent test, new Pepsodent was preferred three to one over any other toothpaste. It's true. Families all over America say new Pepsodent is their favorite. It's a fact. Families three to one say new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, and makes teeth brighter. Remember, this is not just our opinion. It's the honest conviction of the Paynes and other families who are asked to compare new Pepsodent with the toothpaste they were using at home. Get new Pepsodent the only toothpaste containing irium. Get it for your family without delay. We continue with the adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin, who appears by arrangement with Metro-Golden-Mare, producers of The Romance of Rosie Ridge, starring Van Johnson. <laughs> I couldn't reach Seward Spencer at the studio to tell him that his brother was around and on the warpath. I hung up for a second. Then I tried something else, just for fun, just another hunch. Hello, operator. Give me Western Union, please. It was late afternoon, therefore too late to telephone Philadelphia on account of the time difference. I sent my telegram and gave my apartment address back in Hollywood for the answer that I expected in the morning. Then I drove back to Hollywood. It was dark when I gave up trying to locate Seward Spencer, but a bright moon was climbing the sky by the time I got to the archery trailer on location in Sherwood Forest. Yeah? Hello, Dad. Oh, Mr. Marlowe. Come in, Philip. Come in. Thanks. I'll leave the door open for a breath of air. You don't mind a late visitor? Mind? I'm crazy about it. It's mighty lonely, Philip. Yeah, it would out here in this wilderness. Yeah, it does any place for old people. Well, can I offer you some hot coffee, son? Well, thanks, Dad. I'd appreciate it, but I'd, I'd rather have some information out of you. Uh, what is it, my boy? Tell me, is it possible for an expert archer to conceal the fact that he's deaf with a longbow? I think so. Well, can he conceal the fact that he can handle a bow at all? Oh, no, no. No matter how clumsy he was, he'd be too clumsy. Oh, I get it. Uh, like, a, like a guilty man trying to look innocent, he, he overdoes it. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. Look, Dad, I'm going to pick up a bow, and I, I'm going to string it, put an arrow in it, and draw it. Now, I want you to stop me at any point where, where you can tell that I can't shoot a bow. All right. All right, I pick up this bow here. Well, you can stop now. Well, I didn't do anything yet. You picked up the bow and you're holding it upside down. You mean there's an upside and a downside to these things? Does it matter? It matters very much. You might at least have played along with me a minute. After all, even a detective has his pride. You, you know. asked me to stop you, and I did. Oh, sure. I, I was just kidding you, Dad. Dad, is anything wrong? No. 
Nothing wrong. Excuse me. It's just that everybody else calls me Pop. Oh, well, look now, if you'd rather I call you No, that, no, I'll... I hate it. It's what smart, strong young people call old fellows like me. Pop, treating us like children. Old folks ain't idiots. Who says they are, Dad? No, Dad, that's different. It's got respect and love in it. <laughs> well, that's what we keep on calling you. You see, I haven't any children. Not anymore. Oh? I had a daughter, but not anymore. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, it's not what you think. She's alive. She just didn't want anybody to know she had me for a father. What? Just like she didn't want anybody to know she was married to a plain makeup man at the studio. It might hurt her career, her doggone old career. Dad, is your daughter in pictures? She's in this picture. She's playing Maid Marian. Jenny Kane is your daughter? Yes, and I'm telling you because you treat an old man respectful. Well, how could Jenny be your daughter and be so different? Well, people are like Bo's son, the same flesh and bone and blood, but entirely different. Now, look at this graceful little bow here. English yew wood. Pulls only 40 measly pounds, but it'll shoot as straight and as far as that 85-pound bow made out of the same material. Why? Workmanship and design. In people, it's called character. And your girl, Jenny, got too big for Freddie, your makeup man husband, huh? Too big for him and too good for me. Dad... Is Jenny in love with uh, Seward Spencer? Son, the girl's vain and proud and foolish, but she didn't kill Freddy. She couldn't pull that size bow. But you just said that a 40-pound bow of good design will do the work of much heavier bows. She didn't do it, boy. All right, all right. Look, you've seen Seward uh, shoot after a fashion. Does he handle a bow like a man who could do better but is concealing his real skill? Dad? Uh, yeah, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking if Seward Spencer loved my girl, but... She already had a husband that had to be got rid of. I'm, I'm asking you if Seward is faking his clumsiness with a longbow. No, son. The lad just can't handle a bow. He's the world's greenest archer. Well, then that puts the wrap right back on his brother Caxton, I guess. He had a motive. He threatened Fred Cole. Marlow! I thought I told you something a few hours ago. I spun around. Caxton Spencer stood outside of the trailer in the yellow light flowing out of the doorway. He stood there casually, and casually balancing that powerful longbow in his left hand. I wondered how he'd found me here, of all places, hours after he'd left me at his brother's mountain lodge. He took a step near the trailer door. I told you to get off the case, didn't I? Why, oh, it just slipped my mind. Now, what do you want? I went back to the lodge after you left. Yeah? You sent a telegram to Philadelphia. Maybe. Not maybe. You did. I got the reply. That reply wasn't going to come in until morning into my apartment. Slight error, genius. You wired the public directory of Philadelphia asking about Caxton Spencer. It so happens they have a department that's open all night. They wired back to the lodge. Funny thing, Marlowe. They say that no one named Caxton Spencer lives in Philadelphia. How... How did you find me here? I called the... Big director, Mr. Sador. He said you might be out here. That's funny. I knew that Sador never would have told that voice my whereabouts here to call the police. I looked with new interest at Caxton standing just outside of the trailer doorway. My examination got down to his shoes. The shoes were almost new, and his ankles were a full inch and a half 
above the tops of his Oxfords. Caxton Spencer was wearing elevator shoes to make him look taller. Well, figured me out yet, Marlowe? I put it all together. I put it together fast. Caxton moved. He whipped an arrow into his bow and my left leg shot out and kicked the door of the trailer shut. I jumped to the window and opened fire. Did you get him, son? No, I missed him. Missed him a mile. He's beat it now. Can't you see him anywhere? No. Yeah. I don't know. The moonlight out there in those bushes. Turn out the lights. Got us on the hook, Hank. Turn out the lights and get down on the floor. Got him. Got him. Get down. Get out. All right. All right. Safe in here. He can't shoot through these walls. He's good, but he's not that good. Don't know, son. What do you mean you don't know? Might. He could get to us even in here. With a bow and arrow? He's smart and he's mean and he knows his way around this here forest. Can't shoot through this trailer. He can shoot through the windows. We don't have to stand at the windows. He don't have to hit us. I don't get it. We got some scenes a while back while Caxton was with us. Robin Hood's men shooting flaming arrows into some old castle. Flaming arrows? Arrows soaked in pitch and set on fire. Old medieval custom. Oh, fine. There's plenty of that pitch still around here. Where? Out yonder, barrels of it. What did I tell you? There it is. There's the first of your flaming arrows. Come on, let's put it out. He'll pick us off if we try that. Well, then let's get out of here. Yeah, let's just do that. Look, I'll go out first. You follow me and lose yourself someplace. You understand? Old folks ain't idiots. All right, follow me. Now keep low. Right after you, son. Keep low now. Yes. All right, run for it. In 1949, Chandler was cast as Israeli leader Kurta in the film Sword in the Desert. He impressed studio executives so much with his work that shortly into filming, Universal signed him to a seven-year contract. The next year, 20th Century Fox borrowed Chandler for the role of Cochise in Broken Arrow. He starred alongside James Stewart. The performance earned him an Academy Award nomination and established him as an A-list star. Radio suddenly was less of a possibility due to time constraints. But if Chandler was leaving radio, it was against his will. In May of 1951, Chandler told the Chicago Tribune that he didn't find film acting nearly as gratifying as radio. He wanted to eventually branch off into writing and directing. When our Miss Brooks moved into TV in 1952, he wasn't allowed to make the transition with the rest of the cast. Chandler would spend the rest of the decade making films. It was on radio five years, uh-huh. one of which overlapped the TV. four years on television. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Every member of the Armis Brooks radio cast moved into television. Yes, and the only one who didn't, as you know, mm-hmm. was Jeff Chandler. And the reason for that was that Jeff had suddenly become a big motion picture star, plus he really wanted to do it with us. But he just physically, and when you looked at Jeff, you didn't believe he was the shy bumbling Mr. Boynton. Mm. Vocally, he did it. So Bob Rockwell was the perfect replacement for him. We dashed into the moonlight, and a hornet clipped my cheek and wanged into the wall of the trailer. Run, Dad, lose yourself! See you later, son, see you later! I dropped to the ground and didn't move, but my eye measured the angle of that last arrow in the side of the trailer and the direction it had come from. I raised myself on my elbow and fired back. Ah, wise guy, huh? 
that dirty... Di reload, Marlowe. Come on, reload, reload. Just furnishing you an extra thrill, Marlowe. You... Two shots. I've got two more arrows, Marlowe. That means one more is for fun, and the last one's for real, huh? One shot left. One shot, one. Now, Marlowe, any last words? Any brave, quotable quotes? Any remarks for posterity? You cheap 10, 20, 30 ham... waited for the laughter, the taunting, baked ham laughter. It didn't come. I waited with my empty gun clenched in my fist. He was coming toward me. He knew I'd fired 14 shots and that I was finished. He could hit me from any distance. Why was he moving in on me? What was new? What was dirty with Caxton now? I jumped to my feet and drew back my arm to throw my gun at the first thing that walked out of those bushes ahead of me. Don't throw it, son. What? Hold it. Oh, Dad. You all right, son? Where's Caxton? Dead. I got him, then. With my last shot, I got him. Hate to disappoint a smart young lad like you, son. Oh, no, you, you said he's dead. I didn't say you killed him. What? He's got a 28-inch arrow in his chest. Looks good, too. How did you... How when did... I followed you out of the trailer, I grabbed some arrows in that 40-pound bow. I've been hunting, son. And let me tell you, for what? There never was a Caxton Spencer. Do tell. Caxton Spencer fought against wearing brown contact lenses over his eyes for a very good reason. He was already wearing blue contact lenses. Seward Spencer never had a brother. He'd learned to shoot a long bow four years ago, but he kept it a secret when they finally decided to film Robin Hood. He had a better use for his skill with a bow. He was already planning Fred Cole's murder and invented a non-existent brother to pin the murder on. Clever, very clever. I knew it all the time. What? That's what. Well, then why did you tell me that Seward Spencer couldn't shoot? Seward Spencer corrupted my girl and turned her against her rightful husband and her daddy. I wanted to get him myself. And you did. Fair and square and in defense of an officer of law. That's right. Well, I see that flaming arrow trick fizzled. It went out. Oh, oh, yeah, so it did. Like to step inside and have that coffee now, son? I sure would. Then come on. You know, like you said, Dad. Watch your step. Just like you told me. Old folks aren't fools. Not by a long shot, Dad. I've just heard Van Heflin starring in the mystery series Raymond Chandler's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, brought to you by the Lever Brothers Company, makers of Pepsodent. Van Heflin will return in just a moment. Now concerning next week, here again is Van Heflin. 
Philip Marlowe paused in the stealthy darkness of the deserted brewery, there was invisible death lying in wait for him down in the bottom of the unused fermentation vat. But a very visible dancing death was approaching behind him, dancing and weaving. And at the two risks, Philip Marlowe, unarmed and stunned, preferred the invisible one at the bottom of the great wooden vat. Tonight's story was written by Milton Geiger, based on the famous character and modern detective fiction, Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler. The original music was composed and conducted by Lynn Murray. This is Wendell Niles inviting you to listen again next week at the same time to another exciting mystery on the adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin with the distinguished cast. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. April 15, 1961, Jeff Chandler was in the Philippines while working on Merrill's Marauders. While playing a pickup game of basketball with some soldiers, he severely injured his back. He was given injections to deaden the pain so he could finish the film. On May 13th, he entered a Culver City hospital to have surgery for spinal disc herniation. An artery was damaged during the surgery, and Chandler hemorrhaged. Four days later, in a seven-and-a-half-hour emergency operation, he was given 55 pints of blood. A third operation followed on May 27th. But so did infection. Complicated by pneumonia, he caught at the hospital in his weakened state. Jeff Chandler never recovered. He died on June 17, 1961. He was 42. He died fairly young, didn't he? Uh, yes, and very unnecessarily. Well, it was a... a the doctor snipped a bit of another organ, and mm. he got gangrene oh, wow. and died. It was just awful. More than 1,500 people attended the funeral. Paul Bearers included Tony Curtis and Gerald Moore. For more information on Jeff Chandler, tune into Breaking Walls episode 90 or episode 106. People sing and the wild flowers spring and in song.
Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, Are you attracted to the dark, fascinated by the dramatic, with a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives, whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could, they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the uh, then CBS brass. Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and you either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. Remember, a Hallmark card will best express your perfect taste, your thoughtfulness. of Hallmark greeting cards bring you tonight a dramatic tribute to Thanksgiving, Why Keep Your Heart in Cold Storage, starring Van Heflin. In September, Bob Hope reclaimed his Tuesday night time slot, and NBC's Philip Marlowe radio adventures were over. 1947 was a good year for Heflin. Green Dolphin Street hit theaters in November. It co-starred Lana Turner and was that year's biggest MGM hit. You know, we all have so many troubles and spend so much time thinking about them all year long. It's a real pleasure to pause on Thanksgiving Day and think of the many, many blessings we have to be thankful for. And among the greatest blessings we have are our friends and loved ones. On Thanksgiving, he guest starred on an episode of Radio Reader's Digest called Why Keep Your Heart in Cold Storage. The sending of Christmas cards. It was well received. Here, if you want to send cards that are recognized for their beauty and distinction, and by the wonderful way they have of saying what is in your heart. The store that carries Hallmark cards. And now to preside over our program, here is your Hallmark host, Les Tremaine. Thank you, Tom Shirley, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight we bring you a star whose life reads like an adventure story. South America, Mexico, Honolulu, Alaska, the South Seas, the Orient... All have been ports of call for Van Heflin. Then he saw still more of the world during his three years in the Air Corps 
and came back to thrill American movie audiences in such pictures as Till the Clouds Roll By and Possessed. And Van, we're happy to have you with us tonight. You know, we've been told that the sort of movie part you like is something good and something different. Well, we believe our story tonight just fits your prescription. Yes, it does, Les. Even the title, Why Keep Your Heart in Cool Storage. By the way, that advice might very well lead to Hallmark cards. <laughs> You're ahead of me, Van. I was going to uh, lead up to the subject of Hallmark and those three words that assure folks of getting the best greeting cards. You don't have to tell me, Les, I know. You turn the card over and look on the back for those three identifying words. A Hallmark card. And those three little words, a Hallmark card... Tell your friends you cared enough to send the very best. Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of Hallmark Greeting Cards bring you a wonderful story of one man's Thanksgiving as they present on the Reader's Digest Radio Edition, Why Keep Your Heart in Cold Storage, starring Van Heflin. This all happened last November. Last November, I was just out of the Army. And out of work, too. Ever been in that condition? It made me act in a way I never acted before. I got so my eyes avoided people, my shoulders were hunched over. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't smile with more than one side of my face at a time. Not that I tried very hard. What I had in my soul, I, I had bitterness, that's what. All right, that's the way it was with me. I was hitching rides one day, and when no rides came, I uh, went up to the door of this tiny farmhouse on Highway 63. Hello, son. Oh, uh, have you got a room I could sleep in tonight? Why, certainly, son. Come in. Uh, wait a minute. I, uh, I can't pay. I said come in, son. Okay. Sit down. Thanks. Are you hungry? Did you hear me when I said that I didn't have any money? You hear me when I ask if you were hungry? No. Are you? Yes, but I haven't any money. Well, there's cheese on the table and bread. And, well, here's a pitcher of milk. You're a pretty wonderful guy, you know that? Thanks. Was it, uh, Army or Navy? Army. Work since you were out? <laughs> About two days. Odd jobs. That's strange. Didn't you have a job before you went in the Army? I didn't go back to it. That's very interesting. Interesting? Yes, if you didn't go back to a job that was waiting for you. This was in your hometown, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it's very interesting that a young fellow like you wouldn't want to go back to his hometown. Say, uh, I like you all right, mister, but uh, you're pretty curious, aren't you? Yes, it's my greatest virtue. Virtue? Virtue. I didn't go back home because nobody wanted me back home. Parents? Yeah, two of them. And they don't want you? No. Girlfriend? Not anymore. Well, that's too bad. Now, whose fault was it you broke up? Oh, it was my fault. I let the army draft me, didn't I? I went away. I went to all those foreign places for a vacation without her. The Solomons, New Guinea, the Russell Islands. It was my fault. Jealous, aren't you? I am not jealous. My mistake. More milk? No, thanks. Look, Gert, uh, could I see that uh, room that you were going to lend me? Yeah, that's right this way. You're tired already. I slept three hours last night in a barn. Well, here's a room. It's a good bed, I think. <laughs> Looks wonderful to me. I'll leave you. Be sure to sleep well. You'll need your strength tomorrow. 
Now, for what? For the job I'm going to get you. Good night. But MGM would no longer allow Heflin to play Marlowe. He continued to appear on radio into the 1950s. It was hot, boiling hot that night. I wanted to grab a beer and turn in early. So what happens? I get my beer, but with it comes a gunshot, a beautiful woman in trouble, and murder. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime mystery, CBS presents his most famous character, brought to you now in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. A new Hollywood agent, Ray Stark, went to work for Chandler in 1948. And in September, a revived Philip Marlowe series began a two-year run on CBS, this time starring Gerald Moore. Moore played King Leopardi in the summer series version of The King in Yellow. He'd done movie work, but his face was basically unknown to most radio listeners. There was a rough desert wind blowing into Los Angeles that evening. Chandler preferred his voice, which he thought packed more punch. On nights like that, every booze party ends in a fight, and meek little housewives feel the edge of a carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen when the Santa Ana blows in from the desert. I closed up my office early. I got tired of reading Philip Marlowe, private investigator, backwards on the ground glass of my office door. So I locked up and decided a nice cold beer would taste good before I went up to my apartment. Norman McDonnell was in charge of the production. I would truly enjoy going back to the old days of being completely involved in radio. There was a marvelous feeling of going home after you finished your day's work and indeed finished your program and sitting down and saying, boy, I liked what happened today. I liked the show we did. I feel good about it. And being able to sit there sometimes if it was tape delay or something and hear your own show was a great sense of satisfaction. The beauty, of course, was that the next morning you got up and started on the script for the following day or two days later or five days later and you we're starting a whole new world all over again, which you wanted to deliver in three days and had to be confined to 29 minutes and 30 seconds. And this, I think, was the beauty of radio. Chandler made a list of suggestions for the show's writers. Don't always let Marlowe have the last word. Don't make him utter knee-jerk wisecracks. Don't let him gloat. For the most part, Moore's Marlowe always got the last word. They added quick one-liners and gloated. CBS paid Chandler $250 per week, roughly $3K today. That amount was raised to $400 if the series found the sponsor, which it briefly did with both Wrigley Spearmint Gum and Ford. On CBS, Marlowe took up the commercial slack with product placement. Cars were Nash's, gas stations pumped mobile, Phil reached for Johnny Walker and Lifesaver's candy. As he drove around L.A., he found a handy way to keep track of addresses, their proximity to an Arthur Murray dance studio. Even Chandler got a plug in the hairpin turn. Hey, uh, Buster, where's the phone? Oh, right over there, sir. Good book? Uh, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, great. Chandler's new one, you know. Chandler. Chandler. <laughs> 
Where have I heard that name before? On April 11, 1950, William Conrad subbed for Gerald Moore. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. This time, a platinum wristwatch, a body on a lonely strip of beach, and a case of heart failure in a Beverly Hills garage all added up to blackmail, 25 years old. And a killer who would never be caught. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. In just a moment, tonight's story. But first, a message from the Ford Dealers of America. The whole country's talking about the great 1950 Ford. Sometime around 1950, head of CBS William Paley said the network should develop a Philip Marlowe in the Old West. A no-nonsense, tough-as-nails frontier saga, unlike any cowboy show ever heard. The show would be called Gunsmoke and debut in 1952 starring William Conrad. It was directed by Norman MacDonald, and generally considered the best radio western of all time. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe was canceled in September of 1950, but revived the following July for a summer run. The final CBS Philip Marlowe adventure was on September 15, 1951. Now, here again is the star of our show, Gerald Moore. Thanks, Roy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tonight's broadcast concludes our current series of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. I understand it won't be very long until we meet again. So until we do, we won't say goodbye for just so long. See you soon. I still wonder what Rita's doing tonight. Lovable, laughable, my friend Irma, starring blonde Marie Wilson, is back on CBS Radio Sunday evenings now. She'll move in tomorrow night at most of these same CBS radio stations, bringing her skeptical roommate, Jane, her permanently jobless boyfriend, Elle, Professor Kropotkin, and all the others. Be listening for my friend Irma tomorrow night, won't you? That address again? Why, sure. CBS, CBS, the star's address, the star's address, where you always hear the best at CBS, CBS, the star's address, the star's address, CBS. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. And remember, Steve Allen is here with songs for sale every Saturday on CBS Radio. Roy Rowan speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. That fellow has to get married. If he is, Marla's going to get married, is he? Yes, but there's going to be an awful struggle. So she's not going to like him sticking to his rather seedy profession, as she'd consider it. Yeah. And he is not at all going to like the way she wants to live. In an expensive house in Palm Springs, a lot of freeloaders coming in all the time. 
Well, so it's going to be a struggle. My hand is in the boy, so I don't know. Oh, golly. You wouldn't like to go and kill her off, perhaps? Kill her? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh. She's too nice. She is, is she? Uh-huh. Linda, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah, Much too nice to kill off. Oh. How you doing, Terry? Marla? I guess if anybody's gonna track me down, it would be you. Want a drink or something? No, I don't want no drink. You get a kick out of that Madison I sent you? Yeah, I got a big kick out of it. So you murdered your wife, huh, Terry? Well, I killed her, but you can't call it murder. Wade told her about Eileen and me. She started screaming. She was going to tell the cops. She knew I was carrying money for Augustine. She was going to turn me in. I hit her. I didn't try to kill her. I hit her. I didn't mean it. I saw the photographs, boy. You bashed her face in. She didn't give me any choice. You didn't have much choice, huh? So you used me. The hell, that's what friends are for. I was in a jam. Come on, have a drink. I had a dead wife. $350,000 that doesn't belong to me. I had to get out. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. Goddamn simple. Cops had me legally dead. Augustine's got his money. He's not looking for me anymore. I got a girl that loves me. She's got more money than Sylvia and Augustine put together. What the hell? Nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares but me. Well, that's you, Milo. You'll never learn. You're a born loser. Yeah. I even lost my cat. Raymond Chandler wrote three more Philip Marlowe novels, The Little Sister in 1949, The Long Goodbye in 1953, and Playback in 1958. He became a dual citizen of the U.S. and Great Britain. Chandler's wife, Sissy, died in 1954. In 1955, he attempted suicide. Heartbroken and drunk, he neglected to inter her cremated remains. They sat for 57 years in a storage locker at Cypress View Mausoleum. Chandler was in the midst of a new Marlowe novel, Poodle Springs, when he passed away on March 26, 1959. Robert B. Parker finished the novel 30 years later. Chandler is buried at Mount Hope Cemetery in San Diego, California. Later that year, ABC brought Marlowe to TV for the first time in a series starring Philip Carey. It lasted five months. James Garner starred as Marlowe in a 1969 film, while Elliot Gould played Marlowe in the cult classic Long Goodbye from 1973. And a middle-aged Robert Mitchum starred in the 1975 Farewell, My Lovely and the 1978 Big Sleep. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning, with the sun not shining and a look of hard, wet rain in the clearness of the foothills. I was wearing my powder blue suit with a dark blue shirt, tie, and display handkerchief. I was neat, clean, shaved, and sober, and I didn't care who knew it. I was everything the well-dressed private detective ought to be. 
I was calling out $4 million. Between September of 1977 and January of 1978, BBC dramatized The Big Sleep, The High Window, The Lady in the Lake, The Little Sister, and The Long Goodbye. Ed Bishop starred as Marlowe. Ten years later, BBC did a version of Farewell, My Lovely. The shows were later heard in Los Angeles over NPR's affiliate, KCRW-FM. BBC was back at it again with new adaptations of Chandler's novels, starring Toby Stevens in 2011. aren't the same as you and me. They're more scared. We need you right away, the lady said. I told her where to find me, but she wasn't falling for it. Come by the house, she said, if you'd be so kind. The dump was smaller than the White House, but not by much. Anna Jeter had said she needed a man. By the look of the setup, she could have rented an army. She could sure afford me. Meanwhile, HBO produced two series of Marlowe TV episodes in the mid-1980s starring Powers Booth. And both Danny Glover and James Caan have played Marlowe in made-for-TV films in the years since. Come in. There's a Mr. Marlowe to see you, ma'am. It has recently been announced hey, that Liam Neeson will star in a new Marlowe film in 2023. Well, Mr. Marlowe, they say you're a hard man, that you don't walk away from trouble. Trouble is my business. Well, I think with a little cleaning up, you'll do very well. Well, that brings our episode on the adventures of Philip Marlowe to a close. We're not leaving the genre, though, just going back ten years in time to 1937. How did The Shadow originate? Was it a, was I it don't a show know. before you? Part? No, I was the original Lamontcrats, as far as I know, but yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't but want But you to... didn't write that? Oh, no, my God, I didn't even know how they came out. Mm -hmm. I didn't rehearse them, you know, I didn't have dress rehearsals. I didn't know how I'd get out of the well ever when I was thrown in. Yeah. And you never had anything to do with that marvelous opening speech. Well, I Who said knows it. I said that, said that day. Yeah, you know, evil lurks in the hearts of men. And the laugh was your laugh. Yes, but I had a... Reverbed? No, I don't know. Oh, for my goodness, I just did it. And all the children in the world did it, you know, in those well, days. I, I did kid, it. Yeah. But I don't yeah. think I heard you originally. I was it. You just don't know. I was the Montgrath. In the know. 40s, too? Well, they kept playing oh, when they were records, you see. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure I was. Well, that was my favorite radio show. Yeah. People keep talking about it. I hear on television, people keep talking, making jokes about Lamont Cranston. They yeah. still remember that they name. remember it. <laughs> the shadow. And they don't know I was it. I keep wanting to say, that was me. <laughs> Thank you.
Next time on Breaking Walls, we spotlight Orson Welles' one season as Star of the Shadow and find out how the legendary radio series came to air. The reading material used in today's episode was The Simple Art of Murder, Trouble Is My Business, and The World of Raymond Chandler by Raymond Chandler. On the Air by John Dunning. The Life of Raymond Chandler by Frank McShane. Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe Program Guide by Tom Nolan. As well as articles from Billboard Magazine, Broadcasting Magazine, and Sponsor Magazine. On the interview front, Eve Arden, Wendell Niles, Lorene Tuttle, and Willard Waterman spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Parley Bear, Mary Jane Croft, and Harry Bartell spoke to Spurback. For more info, go to spurback.com. Eve Arden also spoke with John Dunning for his 71KNUS program from Denver. Lorene Tuttle also spoke with Frank Brzee for Same Time, Same Station. William Conrad was with Chris Lambesis. Norman McDonald with John Hickman. Bob Hope with Johnny Carson. And Raymond Chandler spoke to Ian Fleming. Selected music featured in today's episode was Cool by Martin Denny. Perfida by Jimmy Dorsey and his orchestra. Living Without You by George Winston. Dance Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns. And Lock Lomond, arranged for choir by Musica Intima. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurdvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 131 will take us to New York in 1937 for the launch of The Shadow over Mutual's WOR. We'll spend the rest of the year focusing on Mutual and shows produced from WOR in New York. This episode will be available beginning September 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. So, until September 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 130, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Thank you.